That was all right. You're so good, in fact, you took me by surprise. I was meant to do my big intro and I forgot to do it. Can we do the music again, please? Sorry about that. It's amazing. All right, here we go. Empire Podcast this week. We're live at King's Place in London for a 350th episode! <laughs> Thank you, rentacrowd.com. <laughs> Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, the 47th greatest living Northern Irish person. Don't act so impressed. It's uh, quite a small pool to choose from. Oh, hang on a second. Sorry, I've got a phone call. This is really weird. Very unprofessional, but I have to take this. Sorry, sorry. Hello? Uh-huh. Big Liam said what? <laughs> okay. Well, um, thanks for letting me know, I guess. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Whew, wow. Hello, Paul. I'm Chris Hewitt, the 46th... <laughs> Greatest living Northern Irish person. The guy who was in the top three has had quite the fall from grace. Anyway, welcome to the Empire Podcast uh, here in our spiritual home of King's Place in London. This is our 350th episode. No, I can't believe it either. We are now seven years into this podcast, seven years into what must seem to you guys like a life sentence. Seven years, of course, is roughly the gap between Joe Cornish's first film, Attack the Block, (laughs) and his second film, The Kid Who Would Be King, in cinemas next week. Uh, But we are at episode 350, and to celebrate, over the next 350 minutes or so, we're going to bring you everything you've come to expect from the Empire podcast. So please accept my apologies in advance. But we're also going to bring you some cool stuff as well, some fantastic guests. We're going to have some insightful movie reviews. We're shipping in car mode for that. We're going to have laser-focused looks at the latest movie news as well. And when I say we're going to do that, I mean we. Because I can't do this podcast by myself. I mean, I would like to, but... Sadly, my three colleagues of such lethal cunning insist that they be a part of it as well. So, should we bring them out? Let's bring them out. First up is our geek queen, a lady who's never seen a dragon she didn't like, a Hamilton she couldn't quote, and a Sam or Dean that she couldn't write weirdly specific nipple-centric fan fiction about. (laughs) So bizarre. Will you please welcome the 45th greatest living Northern Irish person... I keep trying to explain the lack of nipples. It keeps not working. I don't, I don't know what I can do. I, I'm, um, not, I'm not listening now, to be quite no, Oh, hang on, hang on. Sorry, I've got a phone call. <laughs> so weird. What's he done now? Okay, I'll tell her. All right. Uh, you're 42nd now. Hey! That's right. Van Morrison's Wait. had a meltdown. <laughs> so weird. Uh, next up... Next up is my boss, who is not just the editor-in-chief of Empire, and therefore she owns all your asses tonight. Uh, but she is a strong powerful, inspirational woman. Will you please welcome the woman who, and I cannot stress this enough, this wasn't me, who wrote in graffiti on the toilet that she is a Meryl... She's, I'll do it again. That she is a... Shut up. Uh, 
She is Meryl Streep of The Iron Lady meets Meryl Streep of The Devil Wears Prada. Will you please welcome Terry White! All right, uh, we can begin. Wait. All right. <laughs> Don't. Isn't, isn't there, isn't there someone on. else? Don't think so. <laughs> I think I would remember if it was. We've, um, we've got a fourth we mic. We do have a fourth mic. <sighs> <laughs> Is there someone? Um, and James Dyer is also here, which is nice, I guess. <laughs> Pilot TV podcast. <laughs> I'm cutting that bit out, but Keith. we need, oh, thanks we need out, absolute silence. I need, I need a cutting point. So absolute silence, please. <laughs> there we go. No, it's all good. It's all good. We're friends. Uh, so let me see. Uh, we're going to roll straight into. As you can see behind me, look at that. Look at that. Spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> news. A news section. Now, there was a rumor that they were going to release the Star Wars Episode Nine title yesterday, and they didn't. Don't know where that rumor came from. Anyway, they, they didn't announce the title, but, which means, you know, the Empire Podcast rules, which means they will announce it five minutes after we record this fucking thing. So, is everyone ready to run back in here, just in case that happens? Yes. All right, good. They won't let you in, by the way. They've got a really big, burly security guard. But we should talk about uh, some movie news, mm. and there's quite a lot of it. Is and it? there is, there's tons. Awesome. There's tons of movie news. Uh, beginning with, there was something in America at the weekend called the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl. Superb Super Owl. Superb Owl. Super Superb Owl. Love that bird. And uh, what they do every year at the Superb Owl is that they have, they, uh, they have the game and no one really cares about that. They're just like, show me the Avengers Endgame TV spot, you absolute bastards. Uh, which is weird 10 years ago. but So yes, they showed 30 seconds of footage from Avengers Endgame. I don't know it's if you fine. know that. That's a sequel to Avengers Infinity War. Yeah. It's not really our sort of thing. It's not our sort of thing at all, but uh, should we talk about it for 47 minutes? Okay. <laughs> so, Cap's in it. Cap is in it, Sad- yes. Sadly, Cap's beard is not, but nobody's perfect. Sharon Carter's not in the yeah. fire. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah. But he does strap on his shield, so... Yeah. Cap has a strap-on oh, in the <laughs> Avengers Endgame trailer. Mm. Well, they do call him Steve Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> We're like three minutes in. I know. Oh, three. So um, no, uh, it, it was interesting, wasn't it? Because it's, it's still very downbeat. I still think most of what we're seeing happens in the first 15 minutes. I think they're doing some very sneaky things by leaving some significant-looking spaces. So if you, if you mm. notice, at the end, there's that wonderful shot where they're all just walking across the hangar where they used to train, and they're very evenly spaced out, apart from this bit at the end where there's an odd space. So maybe someone's just walking slowly. I don't know. Or... There's somebody there that they're not showing us yet. Uh-huh. Because the Russos are tricksy with trailers. They are tricksy. They are tricksy with trailers. Because they took away the gems, didn't they, on the gauntlet, Mm. and now they've taken away Captain Marvel. I know. Or or not. We don't know. Or Or the the Captain Marvel-shaped You know. I think it's a Hulk. I think it's... You think it's a Hulk? Yeah. They just haven't done the effect shot, and they're not being tricky. They're just lazy. I think they've forgotten. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, there's something in that. There's something in that. Oh, fuck, it's the Hulk. How long do we have left? Oh, Christ, eight weeks. Can you do a Hulk? No. All right, just empty now, isn't it? It's just Ruffalo on someone else's shoulders with a massive coat. 
That'd be I love yeah. the fact that they had the little support groups for people, for the departed. And yeah. it's the first time I realised that Damon Lindelof's The Leftovers is actually part of the MCU. MCU and that's, yeah. you know, that's, that's quite exciting. It is, it is. But I, th- I mean, we'll be really surprised because it's, it's Disney, right? And it's Marvel. And, yep. and their one mission in life is to keep everything a secret until the second it comes out in cinemas, which makes, by the way, our jobs incredibly fucking difficult. You have no idea. You're like, oh, yeah, you just give them an automatic cover. You have no idea how hard it is to fill those pages. But so I think that's the kind of tone we were seeing, which, as you say, is all cl- clearly first act stuff. Yeah. I think we're not going to see really anything else until the film hits cinemas. Mm. Yeah, pretty Absolutely. much. As the uh, person who has to write that Avengers Endgame feature, I am now going to crowdsource that feature right now. <laughs> um, if you shout out a word, I will put it in the feature, because quite frankly, I have 3,000 words, and I... No. <laughs> Just leave me with 2,999, but shout out a word, I will put it in the feature. Rogers, obviously Rogers. <laughs> I mean, basically that's how I'm going to eat up the word count. What? Cromulent. <laughs> I like it. Does it mean anything? Fucking yes. Get it in there. All right. The cromulent Captain America, a.k.a. Steve Rogers, striding fearlessly into battle. There you go. And then I'll just hand it over to the worky to finish the rest, and we're good. Brilliant. I learned a new word today, which is, I can't remember, so this is a shit story. This is a shit story already. (laughs) But does anybody know it? It's the word um, for cobbing somebody out of a window. Oh, defensive right. Yeah. Oh my god! Am I the last person on earth to learn really this word? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. in the next issue of Empire, by the way. Yeah. So put that in your feature. Is it also in your new leadership skills? <laughs> Old leadership Old skills, leadership as you skills. well know, Chris here. Yeah, we're on the uh, fifth floor mm. of Empire Towers. Well, not all of you. Somebody's down on the ground. So. That's true. In bits, I've yeah. been cromulented. Defenestrated. Oh, defenestrated, that's right. Yes. See, but, my language uh, is limited today. It should be pointed out that Chris has allowed me four, four F-bombs to last the entire evening and no C-bombs whatsoever because he's a massive bangly bang. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save the C-bombs for the Glasgow uh, <laughs> yeah. special. Uh, but anything else to say about the Avengers Endgame teaser? Squeeze! Squeeze. Squeeze. <laughs> well, and can we also talk about the other trailers? I mean, if we have to. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. So, Captain Marvel, I thought, you know, was pretty much the same as the first. We didn't really see much more. Saw a little bit of, obviously, um, uh, Lashana Lynch. Clearly, that relationship is going to be, I think, the heartbeat of the film um, in terms of the real emotional punch. I loved, and I hate to say this on the Empire podcast, not the pilot podcast. Judas. Hand, I thought The Handmaid's Tale trailer was amazing. Mm-hmm. And the other trailer, even though I feel now that I've seen the whole film... I don't um, want to watch those trailers. I, I don't want to know... So what's, I, don't, I don't want to know anything about that film going into it. Oh, yeah, I don't want to know. That's yeah, I regret, watching, I regret watching it now. But I feel like I, don't, I still don't have the context of it. I still don't have the, the sense of the whole, and therefore I, I still expect to be surprised by him. Mm. So I'm, I'm excited for that one. Yeah, no, the good stuff. Um, Toy Story was a bit more sort of basic throwaway quick moment from the film so I didn't feel like I got much from that how are you feeling about Hobbs and Shaw (laughs) (laughs) isn't it so this is sorry the Fast and Furious presents Hobbs Hobbs and Shaw Shaw. Um, obviously the two great philosophers going head to head at last (laughs) Um, (laughs) the thing about that is so so what's fascinating to me is that the Fast and the Furious started off as point break with cars best one Um, uh, no it's not the best one you're ridiculous James come on (laughs) And then uh, it's just gotten bigger and sillier 
the whole way through. I mean, Fast 7, you have somebody literally saying cars don't fly in a flying car. Uh, It's just madness. And so it kind of fits, it kind of makes sense that the next logical step is essentially a superhero played by Idris Elba, who they have to defeat. And it, and it makes sense that only a supernaturally or, or scientifically augmented human would in any way give <laughs> Dwayne The Rock Johnson and or Jason Statham a run for their money, let alone both of them. I still obviously have problems with Shaw's heel-face turn, um, because I thought he was such oh, a good yeah. baddie. That's a retcon on the end. So. It was seriously a retcon. Yeah. I mean, does no one remember Han Solo? Come on. Um, that's Soul with S-E-O-U-L. Yeah. 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 Um, no, the Fast and Furious franchise. <laughs> I feel like we're spoiling it left, right and centre, but yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. That's fine. Yeah. It's all good. Hand it's, it's nonsense. Jason Statham killed him, and yeah. now he just gets to be a good guy. It doesn't make any sense. But you love that, Helen, don't you? You love it when baddies become goodies. It's your favourite thing. <laughs> I mean, velociraptors? <laughs> Hannibal Lecter we're supposed to feel sorry for now? Are you kidding me? Darth bloody Vader? I've just, no. Yeah. I don't know. It looks gloriously daft. Mm. That's and amazing. Yeah. Nick DeSemlian, um has been pitching this film to me for months and I've rolled my eyes at him more times than I would normally roll my eyes at him. And I saw that trailer and it, it just <laughs> looks absolutely ridiculous in the best possible way. Did you defenestrate him at any point? Yes. Good. How do I say it? Defenestrate. 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 Yeah. All right. This has turned into My Fair Lady somehow. I don't know know how. Hi, now, Brian Kai. Hi, now, Brian Kai. That was a great impression there of the 32nd greatest living Northern Irish person. Eamon Holmes. Right, anyway, uh, let's move on now to talk about another film that is, I don't know, close to our hearts or not, but uh, Avengers Endgame. So there there was a rumour today that the film is three hours long, too short, and that there might be an intermission. Yeah, this sounds great. That, I didn't what, expect the that Colin reaction. Farrell film? What, like in the middle of it? Yeah, no. Well, that's ridiculous. No, it's great because then we get to go out and have some ice cream and come back and have more Avengers. Yeah, but then our tears will be dripping into the ice cream. We'll be going, why did Cap have to die like that? Cap's going to live. I He's going to rent the farm, Chris, not buy it. <laughs> We've had this discussion. To be electrocuted, trying to take some bread out of a toaster with a fork? <laughs> I didn't see that one coming. Um, Chris, it's Chris, really sad. Chris, when, when, when you went to do the jungle to visit them on uh-huh. site. Yeah. You signed an NDA. I'm not sure you're allowed to tell us any of that. <laughs> As your lawyer, Chris, it just, it's, not, it's not good. Um, what, what, what do we think of the intermission? Is it a good idea? Is it a good idea? Is that a good idea? We just had one. We had an intermission, except it hasn't happened yet, but we will do, obviously. Uh, but yeah, it, it's a strange one. I think the last intermission I remember in a film was The Hateful Eight. Yes, and I, mm. I think it really works there from a storytelling perspective. Because mm. otherwise, I mean, you know, Infinity War was a... Once you were in that film, nothing could have sucked me out. Chris? Chris? <laughs> wow. <laughs> you've, you've, you've broken Chris. I can't say anything. So clearly, I'm just going to pretend this isn't happening. Um, clearly, what you don't want is any loss of momentum or kind of if you've gathered. Oh, 
want to even say anything. What are you doing? In this. This is not police academy, woman. In this first. Defenestrate. Hateful Eight, Hateful Eight, you were... Narrative reason, worked brilliantly as a punctuation note. There was a, a very clear reason for it. So it depends what the break in the storytelling is and why it's there. But I would worry about being kind of taken out of it. If there is an emotional swell or... <laughs> Stop. You get what I'm saying. We've shipped him in from Blackpool for this. <laughs> Straight from panto season. They love it. Jimbo, what about you? How, where do you stand on uh, intermission? Uh, I, why? Just no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Stop it. Yeah. No, I, it takes me out of it. I, I, I struggle with things like this. It's like, you know, when you're, when you're watching a film with someone and they like, pause it to go to the toilet or make a cup of tea or make a phone call or just be a twat. Uh, <laughs> that word is allowed. Um, it takes you out of the film. Like, you're no longer projected into that space and you're forced to sit back and reflect and nobody really wants to do that. But hang so. on, that's different. Somebody being a bellend and going, I need a wee or I need a cup of tea or... Somebody disturbing it kind of without just cause or reason. No, but I'm saying different your nan being a bellend is much the same as the Russos being a bellend. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. It's just on a larger scale. <laughs> it's bellends. You're anyway. right, you're right. It is. And it they is. would never. <laughs> yeah. No, no intermission. Didn't Schindler's List have an intermission in some... In some I don't believe, theaters? I don't recall it having... A, a Hamlet, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet had an mm. intermission, but that was four hours long. That was another one I remember. But then The Hateful Eight, as Tarantino built it into the story. Yeah, it's yeah. in the script. It's right there. So I'm not sure whether they built it into uh, Endgame. I think if it's three hours long, guys, it's it. three hours long, yeah. and it's fine. And if that means that you have to suck it up and you can't go to the toilet, then you sit there and you piss yourself <laughs> because Steve Rogers... Steve Rogers has earned your piss. <laughs> and that's all I have to say in the matter. And that seems fair. That. So there's been some Dune casting. That's oh exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anyone wondered if we were going to mention that. Uh, Javier Bardem may be joining the cast. Yes, yes. Javier Bardem. Bardem? Bardem? Bardem, Bardem over Bardem. No. Uh, as uh, Stilgar. This is exciting. This is so unspeakably exciting. Uh, I cannot wait to see this film all the times. Yeah, it, no, it is. Terry, can I go on set of June? I mean, if, if only just to. Like, yeah. 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 Yes, yeah. absolutely. Take this as your live commission. No, absolutely. I'll be going, so what? It's a sand thing again. <laughs> Is that like Beetlejuice? Was that, it's, a bit, it's a bit stupid, isn't it, really? Yeah. What's, what's yeah. it about these herbs that you use to travel through space? Herbs. 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 <laughs> no, we're obviously very excited, and I look forward to the intermission in James Dyer's interminable fucking feature about this film. <laughs> When that hits next year. No, it's an incredible cast. It was, uh, it was Timothy Chalamet, Tumi Tumich. Yep. And yep. who else have we got? We got Rebecca Ferguson. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson. Zendaya. Zendaya. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oscar Isaac. Oscar Isaac. Yes. Oscar Isaac. Charlotte Rampling. Charlotte uh, Dave yeah. Bautista oh, as the Beast of Raban. Oh, God. Still Oscar Isaac. Still Conan. Yeah, all yeah. good. It's a good yeah. cast. Everyone excited about Dune? <laughs> 
see. <laughs> Looks like you got a plus one sorted, which is good. Uh, so very excited about June. I haven't read the books because they're, they're forbidding and also I can't read. But um, The fit- first one is great. First three are great. <laughs> the first one is great. The second and third are good. And, and after the rest that, there's, a, there's, a, there's something of a slope. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The Herbert I grew up reading was James Herbert, who wrote movies about killer rats and fog. Mm. Not the same thing. The fog was scary. Fog is scary. Mm. <laughs> no, not just James. Who was the one who wrote no. the one about the, with the rude one about the slugs? That was Sean Hudson. Oh. Sean Hudson. Uh, I used to read those as a kid. Uh, for the porny bits. They were porny bits, so obviously. Yeah, Sean Hudson uh, is a schlocky horror author. Uh, there's a lot of him in Garth Marenghi, uh, and there's a lot of his writing in Garth Marenghi as well. You know, blood, 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 uh, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but Sean Hudson wrote the tie-in novelization of The Terminator, and uh, when I was you know, reading that as a kid, uh, there is a, the sex scene in The Terminator. And Sean Hudson doesn't hold back. He goes for it. Uh, you want to learn new words? Well, OK, I learned a new word in that book. Uh, that was the first time I ever heard the phrase, liquescent opening. <laughs> That's how, how many times have you heard the phrase since? <laughs> it's on a loop in my head. <laughs> Hard to segue out of that, isn't it? Speaking of the quescent <laughs> openings, M. Night Shyamalan's Glass did okay at the US box office this weekend. What the hell? Welcome. <laughs> Welcome, M. Night Shyamalan. It's very tough to segue out of that, so I won't. I'm going to do a hard cut. Uh, a couple weeks ago, in the uh, new issue of Empire, mm-hmm. On sale now in all good and evil news agents with Captain Marvel undercover. Uh, we have a big old celebration of Edgar Wright. And okay. in that, he told us some uh, details about his new film, which is a psychological, it's actually a horror. Uh, so I'm glad to see that. I'm not, you know, it's not a director hiding behind a horror film and calling it a psychological thriller. But it is a psychological thriller. Um, <laughs> but it's also a horror film, so it's got likes of repulsion and don't look now as inspirations. And we, he told us that it's going to be set in Soho. Uh, it's going to have a female lead. And now we know a title. It's going to be called Last Night in Soho. And that female lead is the brilliant Anya Taylor-Joy. Yeah. Who is great. And she's obviously got form in this sort of field in that she's been in The Witch and Split mm-hmm. and Glass. <laughs> that one, there's the one fan down there. Um, so, so yeah, so it, it, it sort of seems like good casting for both her and for Edgar. I, th- I feel like they just seem like they'll work well together. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad to see him working with a female lead because I think he's acknowledged in the past yep. that he hasn't had great female roles in a lot of his films and that was something that he kind of wanted to address. So presumably that this is him doing exactly that. And yeah, terror stalking the streets of Soho. That's that's great for people who work there all the time. That's super comforting. I can't wait to see this. It's great. Nando's is a safe haven. We'll just go to Nando's and Frith Street and wait for this all to blow over. It'll be fine. Large windows. Isn't it also the safe word? Nando's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is a terrifying insight into your sex life. Oh, my word. I think it's extraordinary casting. Yep. Um, yeah. Just to segue out of that. No, no, please. Um, I, I, in, in The Witch, I just thought she was extraordinary. Like, absolutely extraordinary. That level of performance, that stage in her career, she held that entire movie for me. Um, 
And she has, I mean, I think for, for horror, and this sounds stupid, but what's really important is the face, and she has the most, in close-up, the most extraordinary face, and I think her and Edgar together, and I think Helen's right. It's really interesting to see him with a female lead, with a female lead like her, because she's played really complex, really challenging, really interesting um, women. I think those two together, it's a really good chance that you'll end up with a really kind of robust great textured um, female lead. And he works, you know, his long-term producer is, is a woman who mm-hmm. is a friend of Empire, um, and he has great kind of women around him, so hopefully this is the moment when that kind of comes on screen. Yeah. Jimbo. It's yeah. not June, so you don't give a shit, right? Uh, no. Fewer for Daikin than I would absolutely love in a film, if I'm honest with you, but no. I think it'd be good. It'd be good, you know. Yeah. You're a, you are a walking cliche. Yeah. Anyway, Avengers Endgame is out. <laughs> no, I'm very excited about this. It's going to be. Um, I'm fascinated to see what he can do because obviously he has done horror stuff in the past, and uh, yes. you know, he can throw don't. a camera around. Don't, don't what? What's happening? Don't. Oh, don't. Okay. Uh, but yeah, we're really very excited indeed about last night in Soho. We should talk about the Baftas, which are taking place on Sunday. Mm. James's favourite award ceremony. He loves the Baftas. <laughs> you're okay. You're allowed four f bombs. You've done very well so far. Well I have, done, haven't I? And you're allowed one patronising sigh as well. Oh, okay. And you just okay. had that, so right. okay. Yeah. Uh, Terry, I know you're very excited about the Bafta. Right. So yes, Baftas this Sunday. Um, the favourite. I think we are pretty much expecting the favourite to clean up, right? British film, it's got 12 nominations. It's ahead of the pack by quite a long way. You've then got Bohemian Rhapsody, First Man, Roman A Star is Born with Seven. I mean, for me, the favourite is kind of classic BAFTA's territory, right, in terms of um, uh, where it sits. The audience, I think Olivia Coleman is going to do incredibly well, as she should. Yeah. And I think there probably won't be too many surprises. I'm... I mean, God knows what's going to happen with Bohemian Rhapsody. Because um, at this point, I don't think you can rule out anything, hmm. including it becoming the next president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> but fingers crossed. That so, would be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it would be you know, terrible. I mean, oh, yeah, bad. Very, would it be better or would it be worse? Uh, it, would be, it would be an upgrade, wouldn't it? <laughs> so who do you think for the acting categories? I think Olivia. Olivia, for sure. So how about Best Actor? Is it Rami? Oh, I don't, you see, you've got to hope that that we know Bastard won't go there. You know, but Best Bud. Maybe they will. I mean, I think he's... he And he is, to be fair, I have massive issues with the film, um, which I've talked about quite a lot, but he is the kind of redeeming thing mm. about the entire thing. He is... It puts in still an astonishing performance in what is a very poor film. Yeah. How about the supporting cast? Supporting. Do, you think, do we think? Uh, I mean, don't even get me started. Well, don't get me started on Regina King, right? Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, the fact is, I presume no, actually, Bill Street's out this week, right? Because we're going to be talking about it. Mm-hmm. Regina King absolutely deserved to be at least nominated. Um, obviously, she's already won a Globe. Um, she, I think, she'll take away the Oscar. It's a huge oversight. Richard E. Grant for sure, right? Because I mean, he's a British darling. It's, yeah. It would be an amazing moment for him. But yeah, I, I, that supporting category I think is is weaker for the omission of Regina for sure it blows my already tiny mind that that has happened yeah I thought she was alright oh my god <laughs> no she's really good she's really good uh, so yeah exciting Jimbo let's hear your opinion on the BAFTAs no that's no, not uh, Helen yeah. hi um, I, yeah I don't know this year it's um, I, think, I think you're right I think the favourite is the favourite which is less 
you know, ridiculous than it sounds. But I don't think it's pure, like, BAFTAs as normal because it's so weird, that film, mm. and I love that it's weird and and I like that it's doing as well as it's doing and getting so much attention. And it's a film with three major female roles and basically no roles of any consequence for men, which is a nice uh, turn-up for the books. It also introduced an excellent new word to my vocabulary, which was bangly bangstruck, which was not one that I'd heard used before. Right? <laughs> okay. Okay. I uh, appreciate so, this yeah. live censoring. That's very good. <laughs> yeah. I'm, just, I'm very saving good. your time in the edit. Yeah, no, it's, yeah it really yes. does. It really but does. But I think while the favourite, and it is weird, I think the trailer does it no justice at all. Mm. When you see it, you're like, what have I just seen on screen? And you've got proper A-list, you know, Oscar-winning actresses saying the C-word. I'm not going to say it. Don't say it. Gift Don't for say you. it. And it's, it's so out there. And I think the BAFTAs are, are a little bit more comfortable with that material. Mm. The fact it's bothering kind of the major ones in the US, I think is incredible yeah. because it is absolutely out there. Batshit. Yeah. Crazy. <laughs> can I say batshit? Batshit. <laughs> yes, batshit. of course you can. I'll All have right. a batshit and not say a... Bangly bang. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> You can say fairer than that. Okay. So how you, so how you order stuff in Northern Chippies? <laughs> One bat shit, the no bangly bang. <laughs> I have a new story. Oh, I have a new story. God, you can't talk about June again. <laughs> Funnily enough, there's been a while we've been... No, I haven't. Uh, in an exclusive preview of Monday's Pilot TV podcast... Oh, Lord. Uh, why the Last Man is getting a series order, which is very exciting. Hooray! hooray. Can we have a hooray? Hooray! Why the Last Man is very, very exciting. This has got Barry Keoghan as Yorick. This is based on the graphic novel set in a dystopian future where all men are dead, otherwise known as number three, on Terry's list of things to do. Um, I'm very excited about this, because uh, they ordered a, a pilot for this, and that's been hanging around for a while, but no-one was quite sure... And this seems mental... No one's quite sure whether it would go to serious, but it is. And that is good news. Mm. If, have people read the comic? Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's, it's Genuinely one Genuinely, of the best yeah. sort of uh, graphic novel Absolutely series. Absolutely destroyed me at the end. Oh, my God. Well, <laughs> well that's ruined that for you, then. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't say it's why fun. it was destroyed. No, no, that's no, true. That's no, true. we didn't. Other pilot TV news, Professor X has yes. been cast for Legion, which is very exciting. Uh, Harry Lloyd, who played Viserys Targaryen in Game of Thrones, is going to be Professor X. Mm. So, there you go. Confusing uh, in terms of timelines, I would have thought. Yeah, I, I don't think, think anyone then, cares anymore. But whole show is about confusing timelines, isn't it? You don't know when it's set, you don't know where it's going, mm. and what it's about. Um, <laughs> it's all good. All right, cool. Yeah. Right, well, there you go. We've got a lot of stuff to get on with, so that is it for the news section. Time now for our first guest this evening... She is a fantastic British actor who has conquered the stage, conquered it, I tell you. Uh, she has bestrode the small screen like a colossus in the likes of Fresh Meat and the recent Wanderlust. And now she's turning her attention to movies with the absolutely bonkers Dan Gilroy film, Velvet Buzzsaw, which is now streaming on Netflix. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by Sally Ashton! <laughs> And to interview Sally, will you please welcome Empire's Editor-in-Chief, Terry White! (laughs) 
We are thrilled to be joined by Zoe because this woman, and Chris kind of touched upon it. Um, you know, they say triple threat, and I was trying to count it up earlier. Um, <laughs> and I'm not very good at maths, but you are a powerhouse of a woman. So before we start, I'm going to have to slightly embarrass you and just run through some of these. Oh so she is an actor, a writer. A director. We are going to talk about uh, Velvet Buzzsaw, um, which, as Chris said, is absolutely fucking nuts, um, <laughs> which we will be talking about first and foremost. But she has worked across film and TV in the likes of Nocturnal Animals, Dreams of a Life, Misfits, Fresh Meat. You have also appeared in and written for theatre, directed short films. Um, there is nothing this woman cannot do. Oh so let's give her another round of applause, shall we, before we get into it? Thank you. Thank you. It sounds like there's some things I should be uh, giving up, really. <laughs> so you were just, and we were talking about this backstage, you were just in Sundance, right, which is yeah. where it um, premiered. Yeah. What was that like? Was it your first time at Sundance? It was. It was, uh, it was my first ever film festival, I think, with the film End of Story. I had always, always wanted to go to Sundance because I worked in an independent cinema for seven years. Um, uh, I got the job sort of two days after my 18th birthday. Was that the Rio? That was the Rio, yeah. yeah. Which I have very complex thoughts about these days because <laughs> of different unions and all the rest of it. But um, God bless independent cinemas in general. Um, uh, it was the most amazing film education. I think uh, Morvan Callal in Ramsey's first film uh, starring uh, sort of up and coming at that point, Samantha Morton, was playing when I first started. Uh, and... It, it, it just seemed like all the best films came out of Sundance. Uh, it just felt like this mythical land that great films just suddenly appeared out of. Um, and so I, I'd always, always wanted to go. So it's, it's literally been a dream come true. So did it meet your expectations? Nothing about it was a crushing disappointment. It's all a crushing disappointment. <laughs> I mean, life is a crushing <laughs> it's disappointment. It's just all you a crushing say. disappointment. <laughs> um, do you know what? It's so interesting because... I think you go... I certainly went with that sort of naive indie kid uh, vibe, attitude. And, and actually, it's still a business. You know, people mm. are still there trying to sell their films. You mm. know, if, if you're having a chat and then they see the distributor that they want to talk to, they will just sort of press your face against the wall and, and walk in, in the other direction. Um, but what was great is going with a film that I really love talking about. Mm. Um, the best part about it was hearing people's responses, being able to have all these different platforms, these different forums, you know, you're doing panels, you're doing interviews, and I can't imagine what it must be like doing that if you're there with a film that you hate. <laughs> um, and I was there with a film and people that I really loved, so, yeah, it was fantastic, but, you know, don't believe, don't believe the highs. <laughs> now, how many people in the room tonight have actually seen Velvet Buster? Mm. Great. Right. Well, <laughs> Mum, hi. <laughs> Dad, thanks for coming. Oh, cousin Jim, you're so sweet. Uh, 
<laughs> more of you should see it streaming I mean, right now. Thing, so what can you tell these wonderful people? Because um, it is, um, I watched it and it is pretty much unlike anything I remember seeing, especially recently. I think there's so much said at the moment about tentpoles and franchises and where's the kind of difference and uniqueness in films being made. Watch this if you want to see something unique. It's pretty, <laughs> it is nuts, right? Yeah. So what can you share about, um, about the film but also about your character and what it was when you're talking about how much you loved it? Yeah. What did you connect with so much? Um, I think first and foremost I connected with the dark twisted soul of Dan Gilroy um, the the writer and director uh, I'd seen Nightcrawler and I loved Nightcrawler and um, when I heard that Dan was doing another film for Netflix uh, and the title when I heard the title I had a very visceral reaction Velvet Buzzsaw, which when I say in my accent, sometimes in America, people go, Velvet Bustle? Wow, <laughs> sounds amazing. They think they're going to see some 16th century kind of <laughs> parlor piece. So I'm like, no, no, no. Uh, that's the opposite of what this is. Um, so they were just sort of little, really intriguing elements right from the beginning. And um, uh, I didn't read the full script straight away. Like many actors' experience, I got two or three pages you know two or three scenes um uh, without a full picture of what happens in in the arc of the film so I read these scenes and again I have a very visceral reaction there's clearly something really kind of quite naughty and disturbing and surreal going on even even in a, a short you know space of time in what I was reading and 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 when I did the tape does everyone know what self-taping is when you're an actor it's this unbelievably painful and embarrassing thing that you have to do where if you're sending uh, an audition off to the US um, you have to have someone film you which is usually a very begrudging partner or um, a member of your family who's like why are you doing that accent you sound terrible um, uh, and they read the lines with you and, and, and then you edit it yourself on some terrible app and then you send it off anyway uh, so I I did the self-tape, and as I was doing it, I could feel how mental I was acting. Um, I had also, it's worth mentioning, um, I cut my, the top of my finger off the night before I had to do the self-tape. This isn't what you asked me, but I'm going to carry on. Keep I'd, going. I'd, thanks. I'd cut the top of my finger off um, doing something useful. I think I was slicing a piece of bread. People were like, what were you doing? Were you drunk? Were you out? Were you having a great time? I was like, no, I was cutting a bit of bread. And I had to go to A&E. And I was in A&E. And I'd already for a long time been thinking I wanted to stop acting. For, you know, for real. Um, uh, I wanted to stop. I just felt like... I should be doing the other things, you know, the directing, mm. the writing, these things take more time and, and there's more urgency, it seems, for them. So I was sitting in A&E with this, not knowing if I was going to have a finger or not, thinking, I've got to do this fucking self-tape <laughs> tomorrow. Um, but the script had had such an impact on me that I kind of couldn't wait. Anyway, mm. so I did the self-tape with this huge bandage on my finger um, and watched it back and thought, you look insane. But for some reason, I think it's going to work. <laughs> um, and then I got a call from Dan uh, saying, why did you make the choices that you made with the little mm. material that you had? And weirdly enough, I'd picked up the breadth of the script instinctively somehow, and that's a, a testament to his writing. 
that kind of LA gallery world, it, it paints quite a um, disturbing picture of that whole scene. Did you spend any time kind of immersed in that world? I think you spent a bit of time in downtown LA. Yeah. Did you meet some complete horrors? Do you know what? The people in the art world are so different from any people that you're going to meet. And that's not doing them down. It's kind of giving what they probably have to do even more reverence. I think you have to be quite weird to be someone who is uh, kind of attempting to be creative in some way but also kind of having to be a banker at the same time <laughs> there's these um incredible intersections that you find in the art world um like I remember one of the first art parties I ever went to I thought I was going to go and have this really bohemian time with loads of artists talking about how they I don't know use elephant dung to represent the womb I don't know <laughs> and then um and and I ended up talking to bankers all night <laughs> I'd be like, what do you do? And they'd be like, I'm the money guy. And I'd be like, okay, why are you here? <laughs> um, being very naively uh, not plugged into just how that, that world is run on huge sums of money and huge, uh, you know, marketing and, and, and anyway, stuff. So I re-immersed myself as soon as I got to L.A. because you never get to shoot films in LA it was such a blessing and we were shooting nearly exclusively um, near all the locations that we were actually using these amazing galleries and warehouses and stuff um, did I meet some crazy yeah there was one day where um, and in the film if you've seen it there's this sort of alternative collective that's set up in the film there's a brilliant um, actor David Diggs who plays uh, an artist who's kind of trying to separate himself from the you know, commercial crowd and set up on his own. And I'd got the name of this gallery to go to, which was named after a gym, like a G-Y-M, like somewhere you go to work out. I was like, oh, this is kind of crazy. I like the name of the gallery. And I got there and it was actually a gym. <laughs> I thought, what the hell? And there was a little note on the door just saying, like, phone Mario for details. It's like, okay, yes. <laughs> this is getting real hipster. Uh, and so I, I phoned whoever it was, and um, he said, oh, yeah, I'll come and open the door for you. And he came down and took the chains off what looks like this kind of very old, unused gym. And, of course, you go up the stairs, and it's this incredible white space with this very um, of-the-now... Um, I think there was some graffiti art that was on display, um, and a man who just seemed like many people in California, very stoned. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and pieces of art, like, you know, like a small graffiti painted mallard in the corner, like, an, like, a, like a duck. Um, so I think for me, it was about immersing myself in the atmosphere of that, of that world because um, it has a very distinct, mm. surreal atmosphere. And of course, when you're a normal person, you walk in and go... The fuck is that mallard doing this? <laughs> Crap. Um, and then you're stood very near people who are going, oh my God, this is epic. <laughs> this is so profound. <laughs> um, so it's kind of about tapping into that little um, funny top spin that a lot of people in the art world have where they're probably hating every minute but pretending that it's, you know, this, I don't know, transcendental experience. <laughs> um, now, as you kind of touched upon, Josephina and pretty much all of your characters aren't necessarily conventional um, female characters on screen. I want to talk about Vod because 
we must um, from fresh meat. Do you miss her? Yeah, I really do. Um, I realised now you, you had asked me to describe my character in Velvet Buzzsaw and I didn't do that at all. Oh, that's so fine. I can do that later. She's weird, uh, like everything else I play, yeah. which is what you said really nicely. Um, uh, I really do. And, I, and someone asked me about it the other day. Um, it's sort of weird because who wants to hear actors talking about how much they miss characters they played? You know, there's a lot going on in the world. Um, but it, it, it's a very uh, interesting thing to have like all the perspective that we now have mm. on fresh meat and yet still be on a streaming platform so the audiences new audiences are happening all the time meanwhile the six of us are like aging rapidly um so people will still come up and be like oh my god you've created this person and this thing like wow mm. and and when we were still doing the show and that happened it, it was this amazing transaction, but now that there's been so much time, it's turned into a slightly different thing. And um, it, it, it was just an incredible bonding, genuine bonding experience. And you sort of get to your mid-twenties and go, I'm not going to make any more friends. I've got everyone I need. And then suddenly these colourful, brilliant people playing these incredible characters come into your life and you fall in love with each one of them. And you fall in love with your own character and you're also having this brilliant time where you're just drinking wine every night in Manchester and um, having a, a genuine second studentdom. So I think more than ever I miss the, that time mm. of life because I can't tell you how much fun we had. It's, it's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, genuinely, well, it's talking illegal. About, <laughs> talking about illegal, um, I was watching one of your Sundance interviews and they, I think they asked you if you had some props or anything, and you said no, but that you had some of Vod's clothes. Yeah. Did you nick them? No. Did they give them to you? Well, they actually made us buy them, which <laughs> is TV. Welcome to TV, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. You do a, three years of a show and think, oh, I'll be bestowed with some stuff. And um, actually, it's just all a, it's all a transaction at the end of the day. It's all about money. Um, I didn't steal them. Do you know what's funny with mentioning illegal? What I did do, stupidly, <laughs> was um, I, I t took... I don't think I had to buy this bit, actually, because it was a very personal piece, but I got a leather jacket that I'd basically worn from scene one of Fresh Meat till the end of Fresh Meat, um, which had all these amazing little... Um, uh, badges and stuff all this characterful stuff mm. and we'd aged it over time and it was really personal to me and I thought I'm gonna wear this forever so I went on holiday after we did Fresh Meat and I thought I'm gonna wear that jacket because it's actually a nice jacket and I got to the airport and the bit where you have to empty your pockets I didn't realize there's a huge hole in the pocket of this jacket and I reached in and there was about five bags of fake weed <laughs> <laughs> They're just built up over time. Prop weed, okay? I'm going to say again, prop weed. Um, but I was in the queue for the what airport. What did you do? I was going to throw it in the bin. <laughs> where all the where you put the water, when you do, you know, when you're liquids and stuff, and it's like, do not bring these things on board. You know, weed, uh, lighter fluid. <laughs> um, so I, I just had to sort of throw it in that in that bin. I just thought was a, and I think there was a spliff actually in the other pocket. But that, that that was you know that just had like normal tobacco inside, so I didn't I didn't get arrested. I'm here to tell the, the tale. Um, but yeah. 
Oh, thank God. I know. Um, five bags. Five How bags, long? can you imagine? No, officer, it's fake. I'm a TV star. I mean, that was, you know, I, I just can't imagine how I would have got out of that situation. Because, you know, the cops, they're... Bad. They're crazy, you know, cops especially at the airport. They'll, you know, they'll send you down for life. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about um, female representation on TV and film, and you do kind of straddle both sides, obviously the acting side, but also you are on the filmmaking side as well. Do you think TV has kind of always been a little bit more progressive in the sense of having, you know, more women writing women or more female-centred shows? Obviously, last month there was the statistics that 8% of the highest-grossing films were directed by women, which was actually a drop. Um, yeah. from the year before. Where do you think we are in terms of representation? And, and as I say, do you think TV is making bigger strides? And, and what can film do to really make a meaningful change? Oh, God, I don't know. Tiny question. I st- again, Tiny. It's just, well, it's just, you know, again, everything is a crushing disappointment. <laughs> um, do you know, I'm, I'm someone who's very much had to try and adjust to the to the times to the moving times um i'm quite an analog person um Mm. in in nearly every way and so when things like netflix or when things like amazon or all these other streaming devices started even you know bbc iplayer i was like what (laughs) what if you miss it you watch it again another chance when are we all going to sit down together and watch things? And, yeah. um, so I, I'm someone who loves a collective experience. Mm. I love nothing more than going to the cinema, the lights going down, being in a room full of strangers, enjoying a, you know, interesting shared experience. Um, but I've had to push myself into the present day and go, no, people are watching things on their phones. People are watching things on their iPads. Um, cinema is changing. So in terms of, is TV more progressive, is cinema... I don't know, because they're all sort of being condensed down into this sort of similar way of experiencing Mm. them. Um, I just think working for Netflix recently on a TV show and on a film has been one of the most refreshing, brilliant experiences, genuinely. And and I feel like people talk about Netflix, like Netflix have sort of got a gun in their back. They're just like, I love Netflix. Everything they do is great. Um, But they genuinely are. No one was bothering anyone. No one was breathing down anyone's neck. Everyone felt on the film and on, on Wonderlust on the TV show felt like they had this free artistic reign, which I had not seen necessarily when I was working for some of the other more beloved channels mm. that, that we have. So, does it weigh does it weigh heavily on you as a cinema lover? As you said at the at top of this interview, you are a a complex relationship, maybe, but you are yeah. a lover of cinema. And when it is something like Velvet Buzzsaw, which obviously a huge amount of creative freedom but with a limited theatrical release yeah does that form part of your decision making again i honestly i don't know i don't know i think what feels really lovely is doing a film and knowing people will see it um as a true indie kid you know throwing myself into in any kind of indie film that i could do when i was um you know younger and uh, and loving indie filmmakers and always wanting to support support that world the crushing disappointment when sometimes your film isn't seen um not distribu- having no distribution it's it's crushing mm. um 
so it's lovely to make something that you know will reach an audience but at the same time is it going to change our diversity is it going to change our representation I really hope so mm. I think I'm I'm just a generally quite Eeyore-ish person quite down <laughs> on everything um, and someone asked me the other day is it a great time to be a woman <laughs> <laughs> It's like, what, like, 5 p.m.? Is that a great time? It feels good. I just had a sandwich. Um, uh, So there's this sort of faddy quality that I don't want to engage in when it comes to this conversation about representation. You know, I just think if we're starting to make stuff that is actually going to be seen, if we're starting to produce to distribute, which is a very interesting and and exciting chain of of um of events or you know for a writer who's been trapped in development hell so many times to meet with people at netflix who are like hey we believe in this because we're going to make it it's a breath of fresh air but i think there are still really really uh huge strides that need to be made in terms of putting women and specifically women of colour in the positions of power in the positions of those people who are going to you know write that check or, or, or commission that show so I don't know I'm scared of the faddiness of the conversation but I think there is movement happening at the same time as we've been talking about Velvet Bustle is on Netflix right now please watch it and also you are doing Pinter yeah right? with Tom Hiddleston March 5th yeah March 5th, we start at the Harold Pinter Theatre and we run until June, so it's on forever. There is no excuse for not, <laughs> not coming. Um, and, it, yeah, it's one of Harold Pinter's most personal works and probably why I'm looking a little bit uh, sort of mad because, um, yeah, it's very heavy and interesting material. And, yeah, I hope you come. What did I tell you about this woman? Please join me in thanking Zoe Ashton for joining us tonight on The Empire. Thank Podcast. you. Thank you. <laughs> Zoe Ashton, everybody! Okay, we've got a lot of films to get through in this bumper reviews section now. Wait a second. Thank you, Helen. Now it's official. Uh, So let's start with the movie that opens today. You may, if you so desire, head to a cinema after this podcast and catch a late show. If they do late shows on school nights, I don't know whether they do or not. Uh, It is Alita, Battle Angel, the movie James Cameron almost made instead of Avatar, but now he's off an Avatar sequel world. Uh, So he's enlisted Robert Rodriguez to direct this futuristic tale of a cyborg played by Rosa Salazar, who was on last week's podcast, interviewed by Helen, uh, who was adopted by Christoph Waltz's benevolent doctor. Only there might be more to her than meets the eye, but not in the Transformers way. That's copyrighted. So what do we make of this? James. Well, now this is, this is an interesting one, because this is a film that we've literally been waiting 20 years to see. I mean, oh, not I was with bated breath. I have no. Where is it? Where is it? Very little bated breath, except for James Cameron. Like, I was on set of Avatar in 2007, I want to say, and uh, we had cheesecake in the catering tent, and he was even then, name drop, uh, <laughs> banging on about that film then. How so excited about it. He'd been really seized by the manga which Guillermo del Toro had given him about 10 years earlier, and he'd been trying to get this made 
forever. Unfortunately, he has 137 Avatar films to finish before he does, <laughs> so he decided to enlist Robert Rodriguez as his avatar, if you will. Do you think it was like director Tom Bowler, that he just kind of... Yeah. Yeah. I will choose you. Robert Rodriguez! Um, they yeah, lunch. And, and got him to make it instead. And, and I think I quite enjoyed the film-ish, and, uh, but my pressing question really was why? <laughs> not, not like, why make it, but like, why? I mean, 20 years for, let's be honest, a fairly generic kind of manga-inspired sci-fi action film. It just seemed a bit like... You know that Alan, the, the Alan Partridge gift? I was just like... <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's fine. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's sort of the born identity meets Pinocchio meets every manga ever written, really, um, in a kind of slightly generic sort of sci-fi setting. Like, it's got good stuff, like Rosa Salazar is excellent in it, and, and genuinely, uh, from an effects point of view, this is, is, is kind of a landmark. And I, from my perspective, and you know, feel free to jump in if you disagree, but don't, because I have a microphone. Um, <laughs> the, like, the Uncanny Valley is, a, is an issue. Like, I don't think we've ever seen... Like, you've had golems, you've had Na'vi, you've had apes, you've had amazing-looking CG characters, but actual human-looking characters always just feel a bit icky. Whereas in this case, she's absolutely stunning, and you, with all the flaws and imperfections and the pores in her skin, and you do forget very quickly that it's a, an artificial character. And that, I think, was the biggest thing for me. I just couldn't stop staring at this yeah. person who is Except when she's in a CG environment, then it looks really strange. Then it does a little bit. There, but there's little moments, like this bit where a dog licks her face, like a stray dog, and it's incredible. Like, they completely removed her and made her digital to big-ass eyes. But, but why? I mean, why couldn't they just had her normal face and then just made the eyes a bit bigger with Photoshop? And well, I believe that's how they did it, actually, Chris. Yes, okay. that's, uh, that, that, that's how it was done. Like, but like I said, so that's impressive, and the fight sequences are very well uh, choreographed. I do enjoy a bit of Panzerkunst. As that's, that's, not a, that's not one of my allowance. That's actually the name of the martial yeah. art that they... It doesn't matter. You know, I enjoyed that, and there's, but it, it has a, quite a strong first act. There's some really good action in it. There's some great sequences, and then it kind of de degenerates, honestly, into drivel. Uh, <laughs> it, no, it does. It's just the, the, it's like it starts as a four-star, and it ends as a two-star, and so you kind of end up as a three-star film. But it, it does degenerate into nonsense. And it's, it's a shame, actually, because there's obviously a lot of exposition. This is based on the first, I want to say, three-and-a-half mangas, uh, and... They never really get to the good stuff, which isn't really a spoiler. It's, it's a setup to a sequel, which honestly, if early tracking is anything to go by, isn't going to come. Yeah, thank God. Sorry. When you say early tracking, James has a habit of saying things like they're facts. Yes. But they're, not, they're not always facts. The James Dyer box office algorithm <laughs> tracking <laughs> prognostication device, which, yeah, let me just, yeah, oh, it's looking quite shaky. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's not going to do well. I mean, it would have to do very well. It's a big budget film, and it, and it has to be a big hit to it get does. a sequel. And, yeah. and it, I, I, I agree, it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it's going to make eight hundred million dollars worldwide. But hey, what but about hey. the production design, huh? Real good world building, <laughs> sure. and you can take that to the bank. Real good world building. That's you know, Chris Hewitt Empire, real, yeah. and yeah. then uh, just no. James Dyer Empire. <laughs> Shrug emoji. Um, now I'm I'm kind of with James on this one. I think the, the effects are beautiful. The the intent behind it I think is very good. But through no fault of its own, you know, we've seen Elysium, which has a very similar setup with mm. the city in the sky and then mm. for people on the ground. Um, and there's it feels like a lot of build up towards not enough payoff in this film because they're trying to save payoff for films down the line, and that that always feels annoying. Also, I would argue the worst love story subplot 
in history. <laughs> I don't think that's overstating it, is it? That's well, I think, restrained. I think what you're speaking to is there is a, an inherent tension in this film which is between mm. the filmmaking of James Cameron and the world of James Cameron and the filmmaking of, of Robert Rodriguez, which, you know, they are, are very different. Um, and so you have this inherent tension all the way through the film between is it a family movie, a very kind of James Cameron... The, his world, or do you have Rodriguez's troublemaker yeah. world of carnage and rampage? You know, it's like the um, the tagline to, Phil, um, to Kill Bill, and it says the rip-roaring rampage of revenge. I think that's it. And that could have been put over this film. It feels very much like there are definite bits of planet terror in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when those things kind of hit up against each other, which is, is part of the ro- problem with the romantic relationship, is part of the problem with a few of the storytelling beats, it's kind of quite difficult to work out where it, it leaves the film and I did I mean I have to say there were bits of violence and it is obviously CG and all of that but there were bits of violence against her and this isn't a spoiler at all which I found just too difficult to watch so yes she's a cyborg and all of that but there were moments where I thought it it kind of went really far and I found it really uncomfortable um, to watch and it is I mean it does really push the boundaries this is there are some really graphic scenes in here um, but as James said the choreography of the action scenes is phenomenal it looks absolutely incredible Panzer Kunst Okay, I feel, like you're just, you. I feel like you're just trying to take advantage now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. Uh, three stars for Alita Battle Angel. And if you want to hear more on Alita Battle Angel, our spoiler special podcast will be out on Monday the 19th, I believe. We haven't recorded it yet, but uh, it's going to have Robert Rodriguez and the producer John Landau on there. Helen's already spoken to them. Next, we move on to the return of Barry Jenkins after the Oscar-winning just about uh, <laughs> Triumph of Moonlight uh, it's If Beale Street Could Talk an adaptation of a novel by James Baldwin and follows the fortunes of two young African Americans as they fall in love and are beset on all sides by ill fortune in New York and uh, Terry tell Chris. us about this film so I mean how do you follow up Moonlight right and it's always going to be a huge huge challenge but I just say right off the bat, absolutely adored this film. It is an adaptation of Baldwin's novel, and that kind of sets the framework for the film, which is um, led by narration, which I think has split some people in terms of whether they find that kind of really compelling or whether it actually grates on them a little bit. I think it's phenomenal because it's all about this world that Barry Jenkins is is building, and this world is for these two, this couple, Tish and Fonny, who are this young couple in love in Harlem in the, in the 70s, He's charged with rape and it's about essentially trying to free him and clear his name. And their love story is mostly told in flashback and those flashbacks are built through an incredible score, the most exquisite cinematography. Um, and this and the narration is all part of building this intimate, closed beautiful little world that they inhabit and then when the kind of reality and injustice comes in and penetrates that world it makes it kind of even more devastating as the audience it is you know it's a real piece of artistry and the, from everything from the color palette I'd say to the, the score is is one of the best this year by a long stretch mm, um, but but for me it doesn't lessen the emotional punch at all it really really still connects um, the script is incredible and it does stay very close to the books in lots of parts and you know the two leads are amazing and we've talked about Regina King but actually that entire extended family is phenomenal there is a exceptional scene 
um, in the first act, and it's a scene of confrontation, and every single person in that room is just at the absolute top of of their game. So I absolutely adored this film and fell in love with it. So you're saying it's Billy Good. That doesn't even work! (laughs) (laughs) Say Panzer Kunst again. That that, that goes out well. Uh, Can I just agree with all of that? Uh, it's, It's absolutely glorious and I am going to take a long time to forgive the Oscars for not giving it all the things. So the, the fact that it's not up in some of the big categories is ludicrous to me. Mm. Film or no director? Film, Film or director? director? What? It feels like a stage play, doesn't it? Like, it's beautifully... No. It's just to me, I found it very theatrical in watching it. It was felt more like a... It's a character, it's a mood piece. Like, I felt I was there with them. It felt mm. very sort of slow and ponderous, but in the best possible way, almost like cosy and warm. Mm. And it was, it was absolutely stunning. Mm. Uh, and then we walked straight out of that and went to see All Is True. Which we'll get to in a minute. But I, I do want to say, um, if, you mean, if you mean it's like a stage play in that it's intimate, then yes. Yeah. If you mean stagey, then I would, I would say no No, no, that. people weren't striding but, around quoting Shakespeare or anything, but it was, you know... No, well, obviously they're doing that in the Shakespeare film. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, Every time Shakespeare speaks, he's quoting Shakespeare. Yeah, Or is he? Or is he? Think about it. You start with me. Um, uh, the Oxford, just saying... Anyway, back to if Beale Street could talk. I just want to say, yeah, the composer Nicholas Brittell, who you mentioned, this is just the most yep. glorious score. And um, I bought it, and I haven't been able to listen to more than two tracks in a row <laughs> without wanting to cry and having to turn it off. So um, that is a recommendation, honestly. <laughs> but I just think it's so moving. And when you see it in the context of the film, it's, it's quite stripped back. It, there's only sort of one theme mm. kind of running through it, but it's just glorious. Um, mm. and, and, yeah, just... It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful film. It has all of the emotional impact of uh, Moonlight, but with just a little bit more plot. So those who find Moonlight a little bit frustrating or difficult to get into because n- nothing seemed to happen, I feel like this is the film that mm. will kind of win you over, maybe to Barry Jenkins. Yeah, I agree with all of that as well. Uh, fantastic. We should uh, give a shout-out. So it's... Uh, uh, Kiki Lane mm-hmm. and uh, Stephen James, who are mm-hmm. the, uh, the the leads of this film, and they're incredible. And yeah, they they should have been in consideration for Oscar noms yeah. as well. Can I just say though as well that there there is between this movie and Green Book and Bad Times at the El Royale, smoking in cinema has really come back. <laughs> I thought I caught something off the three films together. Yeah, I was coughing when I came out of it. Yeah, there's a bit where, um, where, where Fonny is uh, making a sculpture. He's an artist and he's making a sculpture and it's lit so beautifully. But he's exhaling, it's like he's vaping almost. And he's just these great big clouds of smoke and it's lit from behind like, like a Spielberg, like the godlight. And, you know, I'm, I, I don't smoke, but I, I had 80 cigarettes that day because <laughs> it looked so... so so damn cool uh, yeah this is an absolutely fantastic film and do rush out to see it immediately Helen O'Hara here gave it five Empire Stars five Empire Stars and I would do it again <laughs> <laughs> and as we often say in the podcast that's a double recommendation now it's time for something of a rarity a Kenneth Branagh Shakespeare film mm-hmm. <laughs> Only kidding, we all know that Sir Ken loves the bard. He loves the bard and his liquescent openings. Oh, Jesus Christ. I'm pretty sure I'm using that in context. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> referring to the premiere of Waterworld, it's fine. Yes. Oh, come on. <laughs> anyway, he's directed Shakespeare on stage and on the screen. He has played many of Shakespeare's greatest characters, but he has never played the shaky spear until now for all is true tells the story of Shakespeare's final years spoiler he dies uh, (laughs) as he retires to Stratford-upon-Avon 
and finds, among other things, an unhappy wife in the shape of Judy Dench as Anne Hathaway, not that one, uh, some unhappy daughters, and the inescapable presence of his dead son, Hamnet. Now, this is interesting to me because this is written by Ben Elton. Uh, does anyone here watch Upstart Crow? 20 people. 20 people watch Upstart Crow. I really like Upstart Crow. I think it's really, really funny. And it's tempting to see this as a companion piece to that, which is a sitcom, BBC sitcom, about William Shakespeare. Uh, and it's very, very sharply written. This is not that. This is a much more somber affair, isn't it? Helen O'Hara. Yes, it is. So this is, it's almost, it reminded me a little bit of Patterson in that it's a film about a writer where not very much happens in terms of incidents. Um, He does have some, you know, sort of uh, small dramas to deal with in his family, um, Mm. with his daughters in particular. There's there's a lot of unhappiness there. And basically the story is that he's been an absentee father now for 20 odd years. He hasn't been there. Um, His family has had to deal through, you know, go through life without him. He has provided for them materially and he's very proud of everything that he's accomplished he you know he's, he sees himself as a self-made man he's managed to make himself a gentleman through his writing but he hasn't been there uh, and that is the fundamental sort of uh, condition that he's dealing with uh, as he comes back to sort of plant a garden for his son so there's there's a lot of sort of i think modern twists on you know that era i don't think people necessarily planted memorial gardens in this way in the 1600s but it it's quite an interesting approach to Shakespeare because we don't know very much about him except that he wrote his plays <laughs> Roland Emmerich and I, you know, I, I just think it's nice to sort of have someone take him seriously as a character. We've seen the sort of funny side of him in Shakespeare in Love and that sort of, you know, quite joking, winking t- uh, twist on Shakespeare but it was nice to see him treated as a real person who might have existed, um, who did exist, and uh, and this is a but this is a really weird uh, approach in some ways because you know you've got um, Kenneth Branagh basically dressed as Ben Kingsley uh, in this really in this really fake nose. Like I told my dad, it was it was Kenneth Branagh, and he didn't believe me. Um, he thought he was going to see Ben Kingsley in this. Sir Ben. Sir Ben, I apologise. Um, and then he's married to Judy Dench, who has a good 25 years on him in real life. And, and uh-huh. Anne Hathaway was older. So, you know, there's, there's been some artistic licence taken, but it sort of works because she's Judy Dench. If you can get Judy Dench, why would you not? Hmm. Um, and, and, you know, Kenneth Branagh just has so much heart in this, even through his fake nose. Hmm. So it, it just kind of carries it along. So I know nothing happens, and I know it's slow, <laughs> and I know it's ponderous, and I still... This is a strange recommendation. A of, no, but I still felt a lot of affection for it, and I still kind of enjoyed it. Just go in knowing it's going to be slow, and you might be okay. Oh, the God. thing is... The thing is... The thing Here we is, go. It's basically a film about William Shakespeare's retirement, whereupon he goes home, tits about in the garden, and grows hortensias, and that is the film. No, no, it's not... What, you're going to there's tell me that, they, weren't, they weren't Hortensius, were like, they? There's that big, fi- uh, there's that big scene with Ian McKellen where he whole, sort of discusses his whole... Who life. has a fabulous wig. Who has a great a fabulous wig. fabulous wig. <laughs> and they cut the scene where Reese Evans turns up and sues him for copyright theft. But, you know, other than that, it's, it's very slow and it's very dull, but also, also, it's all extrapolation. Like, it's, 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 we know that there were certain key elements in Shakespeare's life that happened, yeah. but all of this is essentially a banishment. 
Yeah, like, it is, but it's based actually quite closely on what we do know happened. We know about but it's the very court bare case. bones. What yeah, but we know. we know about the court case with his daughter. We know we who died. We know this. We know. We know Although the guy apparently who died. accused her of being a strumpet in church, he's much more colourful and frankly impenetrable language. But uh, yeah, I just honestly, this I, it might not have helped that we just come out of, uh, of Beale Street when we saw this, but this absolutely bored my tits off. <laughs> uh, that's my poster quote for this one. Uh, I, th- I think this is a really intriguing film. It's not going to be to everyone's taste. It's very slow moving, and Branagh makes a very interesting decision because he's he's not someone who's afraid of throwing the camera around, as anyone who's seen Thor or Frankenstein would know. That's uh, not a good uh, comparison. Obviously, this is not like Frankenstein, but here he locks off the camera, and every scene is played out pretty much in a wide shot, with the occasional close-up of Branagh as well. Uh, mostly Branagh, actually. Uh, wonder why that is. Anyway, but um, it's uh, I thought it was it, it seeps into your bones. This film, it's. One hour, 41 minutes, it feels a little bit longer, but if you do like Shakespeare, if you do know a little bit about the man, if you have, like I have, read one book about him, the Bill Bryson book, but Helen obviously has read loads and loads of books about him and seen every single one of his plays, including the one with the rock in it, and... I mean, I would watch that, yeah. just for the record. Yeah. If The Rock wants to make a Shakespeare play, I am here for it. Three stars then, three stars for All Is True. And because we blabbed on far too much, we want to get to the bit where you ask us questions. Uh, just very, very quickly, Boy Arrays, Joel Edgerton's film is out this week. Uh, and it's, it stars Joel Edgerton and Russell Crowe and Nicole Kidman and Lucas Hedges, uh, who is a boy sent by his Baptist parents to a gay conversion therapy uh, clinic. Uh, and the counsellor is Edgerton. And we gave that one three stars. And then we also have the Lego movie 2, the second part, which only Helen has seen. Helen, what did you think, real quick? Um, I thought it was funny, but not as good as the first. It didn't have that element of surprise and weirdness and excitement. Um, So it kind of repeats some of the same jokes a little bit, and I think it has too much Batman. Oh, I know, I know. I love Lego Batman, to be clear. When it's his thing, lots of Lego Batman, but I felt like there was a bit too much here when it's not his thing, you know, Mm. so... But nevertheless, we gave it four stars. Four stars then for the Lego Movie 2, colon, the second part. Time now for our second guest. (laughs) You've ruined the illusion. (laughs) Time now for our second guest, who was definitely not the first thing these people saw tonight. (laughs) He is a TV star. He is a radio show host. He is a song warrior, and he is a film director. There's not too many of Lowe's knocking about. His first film as director came out eight years ago, and since then we've been on tenterhooks waiting for his second. Well, he took a sweet time, but that second movie is finally here. It opens in the UK next week. It's a modern twist on the King Arthur legend. Wizards and dragons, swords and stones, all like kit and caboodle. We're delighted, I think you know, you're ahead of me already. (laughs) We're delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the one and only Cornballs himself, the director of The Kid Who Would Be King, and the voice of Orange and Empire at the movies where our theme tune comes from. Please welcome Joe Corney! Look, it's not, it's not eight years, okay? Unless you count one month as a year. Attack the Block came out in 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. One month into 19. I'm rounding so come up. come on, facts. I'm rounding up. 
I don't like it. All right, okay. <laughs> Do you want to go back out again? I'll reintroduce you with seven years? No, no. Okay. I'll let that one slide. I'll just edit it, back. I'll edit it in nicely. Seven years, no one will know the difference. Okay. okay. This is good. This is like the press conference from uh, Close Encounters, isn't it? <laughs> I can be Francois Truffaut. <laughs> The only time that'll ever happen. <laughs> How are you feeling, Joe? You've been you've been junketing, as they say. You've been talking up your movie all yes, day long. How I'm a junkie. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been, I've been doing interviews all day in a room in the Dorchester with uh, journalists and TV people from from all over the world, and you get into a sort of weird uh, trance of answering the same question <laughs> four thousand times. So you better have some good questions for me, Hewitt. Um. What? Where did you get the idea from? Attracted you... Yeah. <laughs> ...to the project. What have you been doing for the last seven years? <laughs> Where have you been hiding, Cornish? Honestly, what's been going on? But before I get into the film, I do want to ask you about Orange Empire at the movies. Do you remember that? Yes. Well, who can forget Orange Empire at the movies, right? Was that your first podcast, Empire's first podcast? It was our first, it was our first foray. Did anyone, did anyone ever see that? It was on TV, like, in the wee small hours of the morning. Basically, we ripped off the format of movies, games, and videos, and uh, we needed someone who was film literate and who was brilliant and... Cheap. So, cheap also. And we got Joe. Joe came in to do the, uh, the voiceover in each episode. I wrote each episode, and I will never forget, Joe, I wrote a joke for you once, and it was... What was it? It was something about how, did you see what we did there? I used the phrase, do you see what we did there? Mm. And you said... We don't do that. I'm not saying that. <laughs> Anything that Mel and Sue were saying at the time, <laughs> we had to rule out. Yeah, I had all sorts of food-based yeah. puns, but yeah, that was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. But anyway, you moved in into film directing. Um, it has been a, a while since uh, Attack the Block. We've established it's been seven years. Mm. Uh, but this movie, The Kid Who Would Be King, goes back a lot further than that. I mean, you, you came up with this movie roughly when you were 12 or 13. Is that right? Yes. Who should I look at during this podcast? Should I be like this or like this? You can, you can swivel. What do people usually do? Uh, they look at me sometimes and they look at these people. Okay, they, they, they bounce you know, between they, they the bounce. two. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, what's the question? I have no idea. Does anyone remember what I said? Uh, the question was that you came up with this when you were 12 or 13. Yes, so I thought that when I was a kid, probably like some of you out there, I used to be obsessed with movies and I used to fantasize that I would one day get to direct them. And I used to make up ideas for films. I was a big film goer, a big solo film goer as a kid. Mm -hmm. I preferred to, I was a lanky boy, so I liked to stretch out. And, uh, and then I would go home and make up my own ideas. And one of them was this idea for a film where a normal boy found the sword in the stone. So it's been gestating in my brain for thousands of years. <laughs> <laughs> and then one day you pulled the sword from the stone. Yes. Became the kid who would be king. What was that idea in his original, in his infancy? Well, how, how has it changed? It was a combination of seeing E.T., the extraterrestrial, the film about the little alien, some of you may be familiar with, that I saw when I was about the same age as Elliot himself. Okay. And this was a period when you could see kids' movies about kids, where if you were a 12 or 13 year old, you could go to the cinema and you could see yourself in these big adventure movies, which sort of happens less these days. Mm. Kids' movies now are usually animation or superhero movies. Yeah. Or if you're lucky, animation about superheroes. <laughs> and that sort of movie where you see, you see yourself in an adventure has, has gone away. But that's the, movie I, the type of movie I used to love. So I saw E.T., and that was very much like 
a sort of adventure I could project myself into. And then the same year, I saw John Borman's Excalibur. Now, this was at the time some of you older folks might remember <laughs> when VHS had just begun as a technology yep. and government le legislation had fallen behind, so there was no certification. Uh -huh. And there was a glorious three or four year period when anybody of any age could rent anything. <laughs> So one night I went to my friend, one afternoon I went to my friend Daniel Pietroni's house and we rented, I think, Carrie and The Exorcist. This is, the, uh, no, Carrie and Excalibur. Mm -hmm. It was another night I went to my friend Jolyon Parsons' house and we rented Zombie Flesh Eaters <laughs> and The Exorcist and Fame. <laughs> I think the scene at the beginning of Fame when he's acting doing a shit. Do you remember that? Yep. That shocked me more than anything in Zombie <laughs> Flesh Eaters and The Exorcist. But anyway, I saw, I saw Excalibur much too young and it had a, a very powerful effect on me because it's a beautiful and amazing film. It's set in the dark ages, in the ancient past, but it's made in such a way that it seemed like science fiction to me. It seemed as fantastical and escapist and mythical as, as Star Wars or something. But unlike Star Wars, it had Helen Mirren having sex by a fire. <laughs> it had incredibly bloody battles. Yep. It had an incredible score, this amazing use of the, of the, of the countryside. So I figured in my little brain, well, how about a movie a bit like E.T., but instead of a normal boy stumbling on an alien, what if he stumbled on the sword in the stone? And that was my idea. Amazing. And I've never had another idea since. <laughs> <laughs> no. And this was a 20th century hero in his original incarnation. Yes, that's what it was called then. Mm. Obviously, uh, time caught up with that title. <laughs> yeah. Was 21st century hero on the table at any point? No, it wasn't. It's not a very good title, is it? No. No. It would be good because it's a 20th century Fox film, but mm -hmm. that just would have been confusing, right? <laughs> Too many numbers. Yes, 20th century Fox is 21st century hero. Yeah, I no. can see it now. Uh, and you wrote, you drew a poster for this film back then. I did, yes. Did you do anything else? Did you write a script? Did, uh, you come up with I, did I write a script? I might have. I wrote a whole lot of sort of sort of uh, false starty scripts. Okay. Uh, but did I ever write that one? I'm not sure I did. I, I always had the basic ideas of the sword coming out of the bath mm -hmm. and the idea of a big siege at a school. The climax of the film is a massive sort of siege scene with 250 school kids in uh, armour defending their school from uh, uh, an attack by thousands of undead medieval knights. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, th it, this did get financed by a major, st <laughs> by a major studio. It's a miracle. Um, so, uh, yeah, I had one or two ideas, and then I sort of filled in the bits in between over the years. Okay. And at what point did this become the next thing for you? Because, contrary to, to what I said earlier on, Joe has been spending the last seven years and one month, very, very busy guy. <laughs> you were very close to directing a couple of... Well, you took meetings for a couple of studio films. Yeah. If anyone read the recent uh, profile I did of Joe and Empire, you know, we're going over old ground here. Nobody um, read it. You, no one read it. Does anyone know what Empire it. is? <laughs> no? Okay. We'll fill you in afterwards. Uh, but there, was a number, there were a number of things that were in the pot for you as well. At what point did this rise to the surface of the stew? Well, uh, uh, after I did Attack the Block, I went straight into writing Ant-Man that I'd started with Edgar well before Attack the Block. And we wrote together on that till 2014. I think that's when Edgar decided to part from Ant-Man. 
and I wrote a bunch of stuff as well while I was doing that. And then I got attached to a couple of projects, one called Section 6, one called Rust, that didn't make it over the finish line. And at that point, I decided that if I was going to have a chance to do something bigger, why not do some, one of my own ideas? Mm. So that was about 2015. Got green, uh, wrote it in 2016, greenlit 2016, 2017, shot it, post-produced it, released it. Time <laughs> flies when you're having fun. <laughs> so is there, was there a big drawer of unused ideas that this one was just was in, or was there a, a something in the culture? Because there, this is a film that... We talked about this before a little bit, but this film could be seen as uh, a Brexit allegory in some ways, or it certainly addresses mm. the the, uh, the current political situation. But it is, cannot stress it enough, about undead skeletons and dragons and yeah. Merlin and all that sort yeah. of stuff. A Brexit allegory. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's Well, it's weird. Like When you think about the Arthurian legend, it's about a king that arises to unite a divided country. And it's set in a period in the Dark Ages when all the different tribes of Britain are warring against each other mm -hmm. and the country seeks unity and chivalric values and civility. When I wrote it in the early 80s, it was felt like quite a dark time that I, you could switch on the TV and two tribes was on with, mm. you know, Gorbachev and Reagan wrestling. <laughs> when the Wind Blows, the Raymond Briggs movie was yeah. portending nuclear Armageddon. If I went into the West End on the tube, there were IRA terrorism warnings. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and so those are two periods in history. Mm -hmm. And then now there's this period in history, which again has weird resonance with the, with the myth. So it is kind of a coincidence the film, as you say, is not... It, it's a big escapist, it's hopefully inspirational uh, empowerment fantasy for kids. They, they gang together and they win the day. But it doesn't shy away from sort of painting a, a picture of the world this boy lives in at the beginning where he's conscious of divisions. But, you know, like I say, I think probably at any point in the last... 40 years, you probably would have found similar parallels. Hmm. If you have any questions now for Joe, we're going to throw it out to the audience, and we, I think we have a roving microphone going around the balcony mm -hmm. as well. So, look at that, Joe. The hands rocketing into the air. Put your hands up if you want to ask Joe a question. Yes, please, keep your hand up. We'll get the microphone to you. Hi. Um, I was just wondering if you could tell us the rest of the Tom Cruise story. <laughs> <laughs> the doodle story. Well, the short answer to that is no. <laughs> I'm planning to make that anecdote last until 2030, <laughs> at least. And frankly, I'm quite near the end as it is. <laughs> this is an anecdote I tell on Adam Buxton's podcast every Christmas. <laughs> and uh, it's not a very good anecdote. <laughs> but I'm paying it out so slowly. I don't know why, but, but it seems to be effective. But I'm going to have to literally get down to a word a year <laughs> and then maybe just a syllable uh, I don't know was that, one? So was that a syllable was that a, a preview it could have been maybe 2027 that was a little easter egg a, <laughs> a phonetic easter egg but no, the answer's no but you know I have and I think Adam tweeted it recently I have found the doodle itself in a stack of papers and I just wonder how much that thing's worth <laughs> I mean quite a lot of money do you think I, I would say so we, uh, we auctioned off a few years ago, Tom Hiddleston, I hosted a press conference for Thor, and Tom Hiddleston doodled Loki's helmet during the interview, uh, during the press conference, because clearly I was being mega dull. Uh, so he's, he, uh, he drew Loki's helmet, stop it, and uh, we auctioned that off for charity and raised three grand. No. Yeah. 
Wow, surely a Tom Cruise doodle would get more than a Hiddleston doodle. What do you think? Highlander 3, Highlander 3. <laughs> you say Highlander 3. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Empire, Empire That's it. Um, That's what this is auction. now. Yeah, we're going to do yeah. a live commentary on Highlander 3. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot to tell you. I forgot to tell you, actually, Joe. Yeah. Uh, any more questions for Mr. That's Cornish? The qu- That's all anyone cares about, is, <laughs> is Tom Cruise's doodle. Uh, Attack the Block's one of my favourite films ever. It's probably definitely my favourite film of, of that year, 2011. And I was just curious, when you were making it and when it was being released, what were the things that, like, gave you life and you loved? In terms of films I was watching, well, I was thinking a lot about um, uh, Assault on Precinct 13 and Die Hard, really, for that movie. Um, they're both movies that take place over the period of one night, They both kind of tell little disparate stories and then weave them together. They both have a building at the center of it, the the police station and the Nakatomi Plaza. Um, They both have some, maybe more Assault and Precinct 13 than Die Hard. They both have some sort of little, sort of chewy, bubblegummy, socio-political subtext through them. Tougher to find in Die Hard, maybe. There's something about the Asian companies taking over Hollywood in there. Uh, but certainly in Assault and Precinct 13, there's a really interesting story about the, the criminal that becomes a, a hero. Uh, so, yeah, I was, when I wrote it, I was thinking about those movies a lot. And then, it, you know, when you make a film, it's just the getting through each day. You're just thinking about the challenges of trying to meet your shopping list of shots each day. Uh, but one of the fun things about that movie and about this movie is to get to work with a, with a young cast and actors who are really excited to be there. Because when you're directing a film, you are, even if you've done five or six films, you're the least experienced person on the set. Everyone else in the crew would have probably done two or three films that year. There's nothing you can say to them that they haven't already done. Uh, and so, you, and if, if you're working with seasoned actors, they've probably done three or four films that year. So as a director, to have a cast who are actually starting out like you are, and also are really excited to be in a film where they get to ride on mopeds with samurai swords and decapitate aliens, <laughs> means that you share this collective thrill of just the day's work. Yeah. It's, like going to a, it's like being a teacher at a school where the pupils desperately want to be there. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Does such a thing exist? Yeah, it's okay. called My Two Films. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever happened to the young guy who played the lead in that film? I, no one's ever heard of him since. Um, I think we've got time for one last question for Joe. Anyone in the balcony has a question? Anyone? Oh, yes. Ooh. Okay. A balcony question. <laughs> the most oh. probing questions of all. <laughs> I wanted to know, has any, what's the thing that's changed the most in the last seven years in between your two films in regards to filmmaking, like being on set and stuff? Seven years. What, the actual process of filmmaking? Yes. Uh, gosh, I suppose digital technology. I think the industry's changed a lot. I think streaming's changed a huge amount. I think audiences' expectation of spectacle has gone up enormously, and th- this is a something everybody says, but that's true, that... that kind of adult filmmaking, not that kind of adult filmmaking, <laughs> filmmaking for grown-ups has sort of migrated to streaming in a way I find really annoying, <laughs> and, unless it's very low budget, because I really like cinemas. Like, yeah. cinema is an art form, it's also a building, you know? I like going there. Mm. And, uh, and then big budget movies have got bigger and bigger, and they're more reliant on eye candy, and they have to sort of satisfy everybody. Um, so it's tougher to get original films made. You know, The Kid Who Would Be King 
has mainly an unknown cast. It's not a franchise, it's not an IP, it's not based on a toy line. It's live action. Uh, it's a really rare thing, and it's kind of a miracle it got made. Like It was a kind of a miracle Attack, Attack the Block got made. And maybe, you know, bigger, splashier films have more initial impact, but hopefully uh, more authored films... Uh, last longer, mm. you know. There's no end of, 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 of films that do incredibly well very quickly that everyone's forgotten about a few years later. But I think it's those slow burn ones that stick around, and that's again, that's the wonderful thing about movies. They they hang around, like uh, you know, uh, for a long time. Mm. So yeah. That is the answer. The end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we let you go, Joe, uh, obviously your worst anecdote is saved, and quite rightly so, for Adam Buxton. It's not that bad. It is a good it's, anecdote. It's got, it's there's fantastic. stuff to look forward to. It's a there's much some twists and turns. Your worst is, is better than my best. Let's that's, that's put it that way. But a famous director becomes involved in the anecdote. <laughs> okay, I'm going to give you that. <laughs> so you've got Cruz, you've got Cornish, you've got Wright in the room. There's a big twist coming. <laughs> This is like, what is this? It's like the new season of Game of Thrones, isn't it? The, the last Game of Thrones book is just out of reach. Oh, this is huge. 2025, that's when we get a, an err and maybe the revelation of who the famous director is. That is optimistic. Well, we shall see. We shall see. In the meantime, thank you so much for coming. Joe Cornish, everybody! Thanks very much. Thank you. So, now it is time for you to pick our brains. We're going to raise the lights <laughs> if you can. I know, good luck. Uh, if, you wanna, if you have any questions for us, then ha- you raise your hands and microphones will soon zoom into your hands like Mjolnir into Thor's hand, which we will soon see, of course, maybe in Avengers Endgame. <sighs> oh, God, I haven't recommended Avengers Infinity War today. I should do that. Um, <laughs> on Twitter. Anyway, uh, well, well, yes, so that's our questions. There's a gentleman over here who raised his hand immediately in the fourth row. If we can get a roving mic. All right. Oh, I picked someone on the far end from you. So, so sorry. He's wearing a stripy jumper, a beaming smile, and a powerful left hand. <laughs> can I just say... Can I just say as well that uh, James has what we call in the industry a hard out. I cannot emphasize that word enough. And so if he suddenly gets up and walks out at 9.30... Then, you know, just don't pay him any mind. Okay, yes, please. <laughs> Hi. I was re watching Cloverfield Lane the other day, and I was thinking that could really do well with a kind of bandersnatched, branching narrative hmm. idea to it. And I was wondering hmm. any films you think could benefit from that kind of thing? And also, when are we seeing a live Pilot TV podcast? <laughs> oh, oh, God. But we could have a pod off right here and now. <laughs> yeah. But well, you're part of this pod. Yeah, okay, that's fine. I, I can't help um, but notice that we're not part of your pod, but that's, yeah, no, that's, that's fine. You totally tried fine. to crush it the other you way. Did. I don't I did know what you're talking about. You've made me lose, use up my second fuck, and shit, that was fucking <laughs> <laughs> That was very good. Yeah. Um, I'm out. I am I'm a master done. of the Panzerkunst. <laughs> <laughs> you really are a massive kunst. Uh, <laughs> In answer to this gentleman's question, though, absolutely none ever under any circumstances, I think, would be the answer to that. Uh, If you, uh, which of course you subscribe to the Pilot TV podcast, you would have heard Terry and and me talk. You are Keith. This is Keith. This is Keith. It's Keith, everybody. Give man. 
Yeah, no, I, I wasn't a big fan of Bandersnatch. I like that he played with the idea that the the, the, the determination and, and, and you know, fatalism was part of it and that there is no choice and all choices lead to the same thing. But that's a very clever way of dressing up the fact that it was really, really boring. And actually it kind of ruined what would otherwise have been, let's be honest, a very substandard episode of Black Mirror. So I'm saying don't do that ever. <laughs> Please, Charlie Brooker. I was going to suggest Clue. Oh. Because I already did it, you see? Hooray! Um, can I say over the top? You can. <laughs> over the top. Over the top. And what would the branching narrative technology bring to what? Sylvester Stallone's masterpiece? <laughs> he turns Thank the cap you. around Thank or he leaves it forward. <laughs> <laughs> he see? wrestles with his left arm or his right. You see, I think there would have been a whole new destiny for him had he just, like, fucked off that child who was, I'm, like... I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Terry! That means, like, told him to get lost. Like, his, his son, who everybody... <laughs> Do you ever feel like you're really misunderstood? Um, so, his son, who everybody agrees is the most irritating child ever, mm-hmm. and he, you know, keeps trying, and he, like, tries to steal him from his granddad and tries to... If he'd have just been much more single-minded, I think that the competition he wins at the end, the arm wrestling competition, could have been the start of a whole new destiny for him, where he's essentially, you know, the most famous arm wrestling champion in the world. <laughs> Not having to cart that little kid around. But, also, I kind of, shut your ears, have to agree with James. Yes! Sorry. Oh, God. Um, no. Because... No. Um, because I just think it, it was... It ended up being more of a gimmick at the expense of storytelling, and I think we... And we, I think we collectively felt at Pilot that, actually, they kind of sacrificed that for the sake of, of this... And it, it did feel like a gimmick in the end, and, and I read something interesting with Netflix saying they could see it rolling out across loads of different shows, loads of different genres, and my instinct was like, oh, God, please, no. I just, mm. I think amazingly compelling, <laughs> simple storytelling, great stories told in simple, compelling ways mm. is all anybody really wants. Um, so layering in, yeah. you know... But it was amazing. stuff. Listening to Charlie Brooker on the Empire podcast recently, uh, talking about how difficult it was to make that thing. So? But it was incredible, like, the artistry involved in it and all the decisions Two that they years, had to make. right? Something like that, so yeah. So two years they spent. And I, I respect their creative endeavour, and I think he's a genius, and I think everybody who worked on it, fantastic. But I think fundamentally you can't forget what those shows are meant to do, which is to tell brilliant stories in a really exciting, compelling way. I think you could use that technology on live podcasts and perhaps go back to the time before I said the words liquescent opening and stop me from doing so. That would be great. Uh, But if you were to apply this to a film, I would apply it to the next Bond film because if you do it right, you could make that film about a civil servant who just goes about his day and nothing happens to him. (laughs) And that would be Helen's favourite Bond film. It'd be like Patterson as a Bond film. This is amazing. It'd be amazing. You'd have to go home and have a sad wank. No. (laughs) Why would you want to see... Never mind. For England, James. (laughs) Buy me a pint. (laughs) Finish the job, James. (laughs) Anyway. uh, Any other questions? Who's on the balcony? What about the balcony? Anyone on the balcony? Lady at the back had her hand up first. Lady at the back. Lady at the back. Um, What do you think... That's a big question. That is. <laughs> I mean, we're sorry, really I'm so nervous. I'm so sorry. That's all right, no worries. What do you think motivates actors and directors to choose to work with Netflix over more traditional um, streaming services? 
Uh, I think it's it's twofold. I think one is money. Uh, I think the other is Netflix giving an incredible amount of creative freedom to people. That they let you do things and they finance things that I think filmmakers would struggle uh, to get finance for theatrical release. And they do give people an incredible amount of autonomy. And this is both in terms of you know longer form serialized storytelling and also in in in, in movies. Um, yes, they are they are benevolent in that way and free yeah. with the cash. But the, I think the cash is the really important thing. So I think it's. It's kind of quite widely known that, you know, Scorsese is making The Irishman mm-hmm. and the, um, the effects that are going to be used on that film have a huge budget attached to them, as well as that incredible cast. And um, th- he was unable to come to a deal with a traditional studio and yeah. he found a home with Netflix. Um, and I think, you know, I understand there's a lot of conversation around um, Netflix versus the kind of traditional studio system. I think when it enables filmmakers like Scorsese to make a, the work that they want to make in the way that they want to make it, um, there's something to be said for it. And I think from an actor's perspective, I think it was really interesting, the conversation we had with Zowie earlier about they want their work to be seen. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are some films that are incredible. Um, we were just talking about foreign language films that get a very small distribution in the UK, which means people can't often get to see them. I think there's something incredibly compelling. They make this work to be seen by the likes of us. They don't want it to sit on a shelf and not be viewed. So I think the thought of it being in people's homes, mm. people being able to download it, and, and we, you know, lots of numbers around Bird Box being shared, which all sound really amazing. Um, so I think from the actor side, and, and like James says, from a filmmaker side, great with budgets, and yeah, this creative control, which I think, you know, the studio system is is worked the way it's worked for a long time. It's regards to notes and feedback and how they're involved in the creative process. Yep. And the interviews we do with filmmakers at the moment, they're saying they're kind of pretty much left alone for the Entire process. Yeah. Yeah, Have anyone seen Bright? Seen Bright? No other fucker would have let David Ayer make that fucking film. (laughs) It's all gone to shit, the swearing thing. Sorry. It's gone, yeah. That's uh, 17 now. You're up to 17. (laughs) But it's true. I I, I know filmmakers who've worked with Netflix and they say that they they get left alone, that there are notes, but they're more along the lines of, would you like more water? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Then you have to cut that out the third act. Uh, So it is absolutely about freedom. And I hope that continues because while that will lead to films like Bright, uh, it will also lead to filmmakers like Scorsese and Quaron making Roma and Scorsese doing The Irishman. And even, you know, we said this in last week's podcast, I am insanely, insanely excited about Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead. And yeah. the fact that he said in his press release that, you know, I've never had the handcuffs taken off me uh, and that they're going to let me do this balls-to-the-wall zombie thing with, with action like you've never seen before. I believe him and I cannot wait for that movie. And I, he wouldn't get that made anywhere else but Netflix or Amazon Prime, obviously. Uh, and Apple are entering as well. And Amazon have just gone to Sundance and spent all of the yes. money uh, on all of the films, which, again, might only be getting sort of small releases here. I think it's probably actually a problem for some of the indie distributors, and I hope mm. that that balance, somebody finds that balance, because it could be a real problem if they can't get the sort of Sundance-hyped films that are coming out of there and, and then turn them into something. Um, so that that's my only sort of concern, or that's my principal concern about it. Um, and obviously filmmakers also do want their work to be seen on the big screen. So I know mm. that's a, yeah. a source of real uh, negotiation, I think, with Netflix. And that is sometimes the place where they find themselves less happy. Yeah. Um, so I hope that they, they still get that chance that Quaron has had and so on. Yeah. But I th- and I think that's actually where the sharp end of the debate is. And for us as a film magazine, principally anything that leads to incredible filmmakers creating bold, exciting, adventurous work, we are fucking like 
100% behind, but is there a conversation to be had about protecting the cinematic experience? Like, still drive... I, I think there is nothing like going to, the, going to the pictures in the world. Sitting in that room, the lights going down, the film coming up, there is nothing like it. There will never be anything like it. And I think that experience is sacrosanct and we should protect it. And I think what we're going to get to is, is those negotiations that Helen's speaking to, where the filmmakers are having a say in their distribution and how wide that, that kind of limited theatrical release goes, hopefully that kind of stretches and we start to see these films both on the streaming platforms but also having a slightly wider distribution because we do need to protect the cinematic experience as well as really support kind of new ways to get films to us people. Us people. <laughs> <laughs> That was like that bit in Braveheart. <laughs> it's amazing. Oops, forgot to change the slide. Uh, we have to do the Q&A section again, guys. James, can you stay like five extra minutes? Yeah. yeah James good. has got a date. Yeah, he does. <laughs> uh... Thank you, Terry. <laughs> do not say the question opening. Do not oh, say the question. <laughs> It's, it's, I should put, it's actually a first date, and there was a question about whether or not I should give this person a ticket to be here, and I was like, fuck no. That would be a catastrophe. Can you imagine this being your Pain first experience? <laughs> oh, um, God. Yeah. Anyway, uh, there are lots of people with their hands up. Uh, Helen, you choose someone. Like you on the front. I wanted to ask something about intermissions. You were talking about it before, but first, I wanted to understand if I got it right. You said, oh, maybe Chandler had it, as if no other movies had it here? Like, it wasn't an unusual thing? Oh, no, no, intermissions were a huge thing for oh, years okay, and years. Oh, okay, okay, okay. No, I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought yeah. okay, it was just, But not okay. so much in yeah. recent times. No. no, no, absolutely not, but so, okay. Yeah, it was movies that I had seen in the cinema ah. recently that had intermissions, and one was Hamlet, which yeah, yeah. needed it, because Christ. And, um, <laughs> and the other one, I mean, all is true could do with a, an intermission. Oh it's, it's one hour, 41 minutes. Uh, but I liked it, I liked it, but still. No, just, just, you know, just a chance to walk around and smell the flowers. And the other one was The Hateful Eight, which had it built into the, into the screen. Yeah, yeah, but so yeah, in the 50s, 60s, they were... They were yeah, yeah. No, no, I remember pregnant. that. I was yeah. just wondering if it was a odd thing in no, my no, country. No, no, but no, it's no. normal everywhere. Okay, so aside from Infinity War... What is the one movie that you would have, might have thrown something at the screen at if it had had an intermission in recent years? Oh my God, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah. Mad Max Fury Road. That is a, that mm. is the right answer. Mad Max Fury Road. Mm. Mad Max Fury right Road. Where would you put Can the intermission there? I mean, anywhere would be a disaster. When he's doing something mad, no doubt. <laughs> a quiet a place. A quiet place would have been a terrible one to break. Quiet place. Which yeah. anything was ratcheting yeah. tension, which yeah. you just dispel completely. Yeah, yeah, not a quiet place either. Yeah. yeah, but that's the thing. That's why I don't think they're they're a great thing because they dissipate tension and they dissipate that that sort of build up that you have got inside you and you can't wait to see what happens next. Uh, so they're they're bad, except for podcasts when they're great because you can have a piss. Terry, you can choose the next question. I'm lazy, the... so the gentleman there at the front row. <laughs> but you don't have to do the walking. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> How are you doing? Um, so we're getting a Resident Evil TV show, yes. and we're getting a Watchmen one, and we're getting a Lord of the Rings one. I'm just wondering if you can see that trend of movies being represented in TV continuing to what extent, and can you tell us what movies you think would have been better represented as television? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dune. I- <laughs> 
but in all seriousness, yeah, yeah. things like that, I think really sprawling things with big mythology, stuff like The Stand, which is obviously coming to TV, The Wheel of Time, which is coming to TV. Dune is uh, tough, Huge. even over yeah. two movies, yeah. to do that properly. I mean, sci-fi did it very well as a kind of, uh, as two miniseries. They did the first one as a miniseries and the, the next two as a miniseries. So anything long. <laughs> yeah, honestly, anything long. I, I always thought that World War Z would be a better TV show than a movie because the, the book, if you've read the book, I love the book, mm. I really do, but it's so episodic, literally. And um, and you could just do a sort of... It would almost be like a portmanteau series, uh, even though it's all from the same book. I think that could be quite cool. And the other one I'd quite like to see, this is quite an obscure one, but if you haven't read them, I recommend them. The Miles Vorkosigan books by Lois McMaster Bujold. They are a sci-fi kind of space opera thing about this dude who's just really clever and comes up with these schemes to kind of fool everybody on the regular because he always gets himself into trouble and has to get out of it somehow. And there's like spaceships and battles and weird people and it's very, um, you know, forward-thinking and inclusive and, and... Representative, and I think it would just be really cool, and I'd really love to see it. And somebody needs to make it already. <laughs> okay, Terry. I quite like um, Death Proof. Death Proof. Death Proof. Okay. As a th- as a series. Why are, are you flinching next to me? Why do you just like drive people to death? Yeah, but like that's every it. week. <laughs> it's like Criminal Minds SVU, except with a car. That's, that's Criminal Minds SUV, isn't it? I know. <laughs> Procedural, and I may think it would be really compelling to see that done over and over and over again every week. As an anthology? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm going to say anything by Stephen King would be a great... You know, I, I, I'm slightly worried about who is doing The Stand, um, given that The New Mutants is in limbo and we may never see it, but uh, ten episodes is a good, good, uh, good length for The Stand. But something like The Dark Tower, I mean, they royally balls that up on the big screen. It would have been interesting to see a TV show uh, over four or five seasons so they could really royally balls it up, (laughs) but just over a much longer period of time. Uh, And, of course, uh, Sean Hudson's Slugs, I think, would be a great, great TV show over eight episodes. James, pick a question. Oh, oh, oh. Yes, you. Thanks, James. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome, Keith. It's fine. (laughs) A lot of people with, call Keith. Uh, with Avengers Endgame coming out, which I believe everyone's excited about. Is it coming out? Is I hadn't yeah. noticed. <laughs> um, you almost forget that Star Wars Episode Nine's coming out this year. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, he hasn't, but that's good. <laughs> uh, but I'm just wondering like, what your sort of hopes, fears, expectations are for that finale, for the trilogy, because not just because they had like a different writer each time, so there's been no through plan, but also like mm. the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy take us like space over across quite a few years. Mm. So you get a sense of an epic journey whilst these two episodes have been back to back and it seems like the story's taking place over a week so far. <laughs> or however long it takes for like a ship to run out of fuel. So <laughs> so just yeah, what 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 do you hope for the if it could be a good way to fish up the It is trilogy. funny, isn't it? Like, I'm a massive Star Wars fan, and it, it's strange that of the big things happening this year, if I'm honest, Star Wars is probably the third most exciting thing. What's the second? After it, Game of Thrones. Like, so it, for me, it's, it's Endgame, and then Game of Thrones, and then Episode Nine, And that makes me a little bit sad, because I, yeah. do, I love Star Wars. Uh, and I love The Last Jedi. You know, some of you may hate it, a lot of people did, but I really, really liked it. Uh, I think... I think Solo was a really big problem for them. And I think it came six months after a film that was divisive. It was the most, as I said, the most aggressively average film ever made. Uh, 
and it was fine, but it took the sheen off of Star Wars for me. And it's got to the point now where I'm sure when I, I will lose my fucking shit when I watch episode nine, I will be queuing outside it and I will go ballistic. And as we get closer to it, and I'm sure when I see the first trailer, I will go yeah. berserk. <laughs> but at the moment, I just, you know, it's the magic. My loins are not stirred, if you will. <laughs> there is an image. But don't yeah. you think, I think they've done the right approach because actually I think you're completely right. I think the speed of Solo, so many people were bruised after Last Jedi and weren't ready at all. Mm. And I think this gap where we've had nothing and, you know, rumours of, as you say, the title, I think this gap was so needed and I think people need a bit of time to recalibrate. Mm. Um, I think how you feel about it is how a lot of fans feel about it. And I think with JJ, you've got to hope they're going to go kind of back to basics, back to those kind of principles of Star Wars that people love. Um, I think it's probably going to dial back some of the stuff, obviously, that happened in the last main episode, and they're going to kind of go back to basics because I think the fans are kind of all over the map on it at the moment, and I think they should leave it a little bit longer, and I think then it'll be about can they do something, can they produce little teasers or whatever that will rekindle James's loins and <laughs> the likes well, of James. I do think, like, you know that, that exercise you should do in English class where you'd write a paragraph or a sentence and then you pass it to the next person and they'd write the next sentence? And I feel that's a little bit like this is going, like, Ryan Johnson's finished and J.J. Abrams like, snatch something going, fuck you, cut to <laughs> the Knights of Wren are triumphantly storming, raised parents swoop in and it's all like it's the ch- like you're getting whiplash from going from Force Awakens to Last Jedi and then yeah. back to you know maybe he'll take that and work with it and maybe yeah. it'll be great I'm, I'm hopeful um, I my big sort of disappointment about it is I feel like we were I feel like it was almost three parts of people dealing with Kylo Ren who as you know I love and um, so part one was you know Han trying to deal with him didn't work so well. Part two, Luke trying to deal with him, maybe made a bit more of an impression. And I thought part three, we were going to see some kind of mother-son scene. And I was genuinely really Mm. looking forward to that. I thought that'd be really Mm. important. And we're never going to see that, presumably. Unless there is... I mean, they they said that held a little bit back of what she shot. But it doesn't Mm. feel like it's going to be that. And I'm really regretful that that we don't get to see that. And I feel like they'll probably give some of that same emotional kind of content to Luke's Force Ghost. And there'll probably be something of that still there. But but I would have loved to see Carrie Fisher in that scene. I think that would have been amazing. Sorry, that's a real dime. You've just killed the podcast. Sorry, I'll, I'll bring it back up again. Oh, God. You know we're all going to die, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about episode nine. I feel that at the moment all my energy is going in towards Avengers Endgame. Uh, I don't really care that much about Game of Thrones. Sorry, but, um, but Avengers Endgame is, is where it is. But once that's out of the way, and once Game of Thrones is out of the way, and once Dara O'Brien's Blockbusters is out of the way, then it is time to focus. You know, not, not, it's coming back. Blockbusters is coming back with Dara O'Brien and says, eh, eh, pee, please. Um, so, anyway, um, then we can focus on Star Wars Episode Nine, And we said at the beginning of the podcast that the title for Episode Nine might be revealed during this podcast. And I have to say, I do have a very exciting bit of Star Wars news on Twitter right now. Peter Mayhew is going to Star Wars Celebration Chicago, everybody. So that's good for him. Another freebie for Mayhew. But we've got time for one last question. And Terry, as the editor-in-chief of Empire Magazine, do not pick someone in the front three rows. You just limited my power immediately. Do you not no. see? There's literally people hang with on, hands. Hang on, hang on. All right. There's people with hands, I would hope. Handest. Um, that lad right at the back. <laughs> <laughs> Oz that, 
Does he have any identifying features? Any distinguishing marks? He's holding the microphone. That's a He's good start. He's got a microphone. Okay. Thanks for that, um, James. Shouldn't you get going? He's I mean, over. let's be honest. Genuinely. It's not going to work out. Uh, <laughs> I want you all to do something for me. Can you all just say, right now, can you all just say he's running late? Go. go. Oh, one, two, three, go. go. He's running late. Also, he's terrible. It won't work. <laughs> you can do so much better, believe me. <laughs> are you not filming this? You really are. <laughs> dreadful. Bangly bang. <laughs> Anyway, please, sir, was that your question? No, um, first of all, you've not said where's the handle yet. So. Oh. I was going to try and work I'm this in. Some... I, I twisted myself. Not, is there any news about composers and we could do <laughs> something there? I yeah. wanted to find a way to work it in, and I came yeah. up with absolutely nothing. No. And so also, we're not performing monkeys up here, okay? We're not just going to go, where's the handle? Where is it? Where is it? Find it. You were supposed to protect us. You were supposed to protect us. Did you see? They put it down there. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that Avengers Endgame, he finally finds the fucking handle. <laughs> that that's it, the triumphant moment of Avengers Endgame is Eitri the dwarf going, I have the handle. Look, it was under the sofa the whole time. That would be amazing. Was that your question? No, the question okay. is... <laughs> no, the question is, um, do, have you heard anything about the next Star Trek film? Do you think it's going to happen? No. No. <laughs> no, I, I, think, I think they made a, a strategic error, which I believe, and I may be wrong on this, but I believe that they announced that they were making a Star Trek film with Chris's Pine and Hemsworth, half of the Hollywood Chris's, um, uh, starring in it, and neglected to read their contracts first. Uh, so I assume that their agent said, brilliant, we'll have 50 million pounds, please, not even dollars. And, uh, and then they, they suddenly realised that that wasn't, you know, a good idea. Yeah. No, that's my personal, you know, just, you know, headcanon of what happened. I, I have, there, there were a few suggestions that that might be the case, but honestly, I don't know. Um, but certainly at the moment, it doesn't look imminent. I also think there's a financial element to this. And like, uh, CBS are very much trying to push the CBS All Access service, mm. which is hinging on Star Trek Discovery, which airs on there in the States. Uh, you've got the Picard series, which is amazing. Oh. Starting at the end of this year. There's a, yes, yes. Uh, there's a Michelle Yeoh spin-off. So I think they're going to try very, very hard to kind of flog the TV angle of this to death for a while. So I don't think they're going to be in any, in any rush And actually, to do speaking that. of things that should be on TV, Star Trek. Star Trek is so good on TV, and yeah. I feel like... The, the films are good, though. Films like, are good. Look, you love the films. Well, the films, well, films but the TV shows are better. <laughs> but but it, TV is where you can get into the big ideas, which is, is what mm. it was originally meant to be talking about, and that's what I kind of enjoy. When no, I agree. Which is not to say that the good films aren't good. The good films are great. <laughs> and we, yeah. If you want to hear more about that, we did a ranking episode about Star Trek. That's available for you as well. Uh, is that, was that your question? Okay. <laughs> All right, great, because that is it. That is it on that bombshell. That is it for this live podcast. It's been a marathon. Sorry about that, everyone who died uh, during the uh, course of this podcast. Where's my medal? <laughs> you've, got, you've got enough medals. You've got more medals than Chewbacca, who doesn't have any medals because of Star Wars space racists. It's true. Have you seen that? Actually, if you go on Wikipedia, they have retconned it, so he actually got one off screen. Oh, what a load of Absolutely shit. true. <laughs> Oh, so why, he's not good enough to get his medal on screen? Yeah. 
What a load of Kashyyyk. to you, sir. Boo-backa, more like that. <laughs> Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by the Kid Whoopi Kings. You know, that seven-year gap for Joe Cornish is finally over. Uh, the Kid Whoopi Kings, Merlins, Sir Patrick Stewart and Angus Imry. Not a night yet, but you never know. And also we'll be joined by Mary J. Blige. Yes! I know. You may, ooh, all you like. Like right, a knight right. of the realm doesn't like get any news, but Mary J. Blige, yes, absolutely. All right, Very people, excited about that. No more drama, come on. No more drama, it's all good. That's good. No, it's good. I'm so sorry. Uh, time now to do very, very quickly the thanking of the U's. Thanks, of course, to the team at King's Place who've been amazing. Zoe Chase. Sally Hollingworth. Chris and the team here who've been absolutely amazing, uh, who've made it all possible. Thanks to everyone who gave us the spot prizes that we haven't yet given away in our entirety. So the likes of Last Exit to Nowhere, Criterion Collection, Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, Arrow Home Video, Eureka, Second Sight, Dog Wolf and Cult Films, AIM Publicity, 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment, Think Jam and Grapevine. Uh, it's been amazing. Couldn't have done without you guys. Thanks to our incredible guests, <coughs> Zoe Ashton. And uh, Joseph Cornish. Thank you to you guys, because I say this every single time, but we could not do these live shows without you. Your support of the podcast is incredible and inspiring and... Uh, thank you so much and unwarranted <laughs> and what the hell are you doing have you heard like Jonathan Ross has got a film podcast now so is Kermode really good stuff uh, you should <laughs> should check that out uh, but thank you so much you've been incredible yeah give yourselves a round of applause thank you to the three giggling idiots to my left uh, James Dyer who has I mean you know Gone true love to stay with you it's for an true. extra 15 it's minutes. It's true. It's true. <laughs> Face it, Tiger, you just hit the jackpot. <laughs> Pilot TV podcast every Monday at available on iTunes. <laughs> it's goodbye from Terry White. Bye, sorry about Bangly Bang. <laughs> it's goodbye from the 42nd greatest living Northern Irish person. Helen O'Hara. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to start pissing my pants early in anticipation of Avengers Endgame. (laughs) Because you never can start too early, can you, really? Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye.